Hi, this is Bob Rosakis. You're listening to the Batman Family Reunion on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Welcome to the Batman Family Reunion, a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm Paul Ken, one of your hosts, and with me, as always, is my co-host and man-bat cousin, Sean M. Myers. What's new, Sean? Well, you guys know that I work in a library, but great-grandpa Burgess didn't. He was telling me all about the books he got out of his library, a huge <laughs> stack of them that he can now read, because now he has a lot of time at his disposal. <laughs> How about you, Paul? Doing great, Sean. You got to make it a point to go over and chat with our British bat relatives. Bat Uncle Alan is a particularly distinguished gentleman and a good cook, too. This month, gang, we are thrilled to welcome a distinguished podcaster to the reunion. That's right. We have Fire and Water All-Star, host of the Plasticast and the Death-Defying Human Flycast, Max Romero himself. How are you doing, Max? I can't wait to hear what you brought to the reunion. Hey, guys. I'm happy to be here. Happy to see the whole family again. I am sorry about all the crying children, though, but the bounce house is my house. Okay? <laughs> so everyone should know that by now. I brought with me a great big bowl of Watergate salad. Uh, we we kind of talked about this earlier. You guys said you didn't, no one knew what this was. You know, it's it's an old family recipe that we got off the side of a Jello pudding box. <laughs> so uh, all it is is pistachio pudding mix, canned fruit salad, Cool Whip, and crushed pecans. Wow. You just put it all together. There you go. <laughs> We're looking at 70s comic books, so I brought a 70s dessert. Not to put you on a spot, is it named the Watergate Salad because it was served at the Watergate Hotel? <laughs> you know, I actually looked it up. The, the Watergate Hotel denies it. No one really knows where it got the name, but it's also called Green Fluff. So I think Watergate Salad at least sounds a little more dignified. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, Max, before we get started, can you tell us anything about your history with the Batman Family comic book? Did you have it when you were a kid? And who's your favorite Bat Family member? So I, I've told this story before. I don't want to bore your listeners, but I had an aunt who owned a used bookstore in right. El Paso, which is where I grew up. And my parents, my dad especially, when they were, because back in those days, you could actually like go to the electric company and you go to the water company to pay your bills and that sort of thing. So they would drop me off at her bookstore. And to keep me out of her hair, she would sit me at a table with a stack of comic books. And that's how I started reading Batman Family, Superman Family. Uh, that was my introduction to the human target, to a bunch of Bronze Age comics from that time. Cool. And so, yeah, and I used to really love the family books because exactly because of what you guys have been talking about. It's a cool way to see people or characters who are in Batman's orbit, but who might not get a book of their own. Yeah. So that that anthology is is really uh, ap appealing to me. I mean, a buck was a lot of money back in those days. Yeah. Yeah. But you, but especially w with this one, and I'm sure we'll get into it. But this one is a lot of value for that dollar. That's awesome. And favorite bat family member. Yeah, don't forget that. Yeah, no, my favorite bat <laughs> is uh, actually Man Bat. Oh, yeah, I've, just I've made always, a friend. <laughs> I've always liked kind of the horror vibe, and Golden just does such a great job in in how he depicts Man Bat. And it's just, I'll go ahead and say it now. I think it's probably the best looking feature in <laughs> in Batman Family. Yeah, there's just something about it that I just thought was really appealing. I liked his flip flop between being a villain and being a hero, and try, you know his whole struggle and that sort of thing. And I just thought he looked really cool. All right, Sean, you want to remind our listeners what the show's about? Absolutely. Batman Family was a DC comic that ran for 20 issues from 1975 to 1978, and then rescued Detective Comics from the DC implosion 
by continuing as a dollar comic for 15 more issues until 1980. The title started out with new features starring Batgirl and Robin, along with reprints, before morphing into all new stories starring other members of the Batman family, such as the Huntress, Commissioner Gordon, Man Bat, and even Black Lightning and Red Tornado, other than his appearance here. <laughs> Both of your hosts collected and read these comics as they came out and are excited to share their love of this era at the Batman family reunion. Let's get into issue 20 of the Batman family. This is issue number 20, the final issue. We'll talk about that more later. Its cover date was October, November of 1978 and went on sale, according to Mike's Amazing World, in July of 1978. It's still priced at a dollar, but we now are at a 64-page count, but it's not a reduction in content. There are no ads. There are four new stories, and the cover is a wraparound cover by Jim Starlin. So what do you guys think of this cover? Max, you want to start? Beautiful. I love it. <laughs> I'm, I'm a sucker for a wraparound cover. And Starlin, I mean, it's Jim Starlin. It's fantastic. There's so much going on. Almost the entire Bat family is there. We're only missing Huntress, but we have Ragman in her place. Looks like it's a, a crowded junkyard. There's no lack of detail, especially on the back cover. All, all the action is happening on the back cover. On the front, you see <laughs> you see uh, Batman and Ragman kind of facing off. But in the on the back cover, you have Man-Bat swooping down and just really looks like you're just clawing at some guy with his with his foot yeah robin is clobbering someone batgirl is smacking someone and it's just it's a really kinetic comic that looks really great they use a purple background for the sky which kind of gives you that that sense of it being sunset or about to be dawn you know that kind of in between time that when you get that sky and it just it looks fantastic don't disagree sean what are your thoughts yeah, I, I agree with everything that Max said. I, I would have to really like look at them side by side by side, but this probably is my favorite wraparound cover front yeah. and back. No boxes, which is wonderful. <laughs> and again, I kind of said it before, like theoretically, technically, maybe you could have the complaint that not all four of them are in the same story. But I think at this point, not every comic cover is a direct reference to what is going on in that story. And you know, there's certainly nothing that says on the front cover all together for the first time. I absolutely love this cover. Love the fact that Batgirl's outfit is like all black. That looks fantastic. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that because that's really cool. Instead of gray, like Batman's, which usually she has been portrayed. And I don't know whether this is the start of that or what, but... I really like that her outfit's all black with the yellow contrast. And I understand why you can't really do it a lot in comics, especially like if she's out at night, like you're yeah. not going to see her. But and like how Max said, it's like the purple background so that yeah. she stands out. Yeah. But I, I, yeah, I think it looks fantastic. Yeah, it looks great. I like the cover copy is on pieces of scrap paper floating from the back cover towards the front cover. On the front cover, it just says, enter the Ragman," But on the back cover, it's from the gutter and foul places they crawl. <laughs> the human vermin who prey on the innocence of Gotham, <laughs> but always there to oppose them is the Batman family. Also featuring the Huntress. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I think that that is a fantastic touch. And they use the Michael Golden heads that we've seen before. They're getting a lot of mileage out of those from that star-studded cover on, I think, number 17, First Dollar Comics. Yeah, this is a real, real winner all the way around. I also have to say, I like that all the thugs have different faces. Oh, yeah. You know, they all have mm -hmm. different, not body types. They all look, you know, just like your standard thug. But, but you know, they're all they're all kind of distinct. And Starling didn't necessarily have to do that. And it's great. And, and you know, just to get back. Yeah, the details. The details. The incredible. one guy, the guy that Batgirl's punching, his belt is a rope. It's mm -hmm. not even a belt. It's a rope. 
Oh my God, I didn't even notice that. Yeah. It's so cool. I mean, it's just the detail, the trash on the ground, the broken TVs, the church steeple in the background. It's just the gun mm-hmm. flying out of the hand of the guy that Batman or the man bat clobber. Just the level of detail is really extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Underneath the stream paper where it says the human vermin who prey on the innocence of Gotham, they have the bottle city of Candor down there. They get, they look <laughs> we will post this image of the cover as well as some additional pages from each of the stories in our family portrait gallery on the network's website. Paul, remind our listeners where that is. That site is fireandwaterpodcast.com. So, Sean, let's get rolling on our first story. Okay. It is called Enter the Ragman. And, of course, it's Batman with the guest star of Ragman. It has 19 pages. The writer is David V. Reed. The penciler is Michael Golden, inked by Robert Allen Smith. And it was later reprinted nowhere... Not even in the Michael Golden book, which is strange. And I actually think we also have to kind of talk about Batman Family number 20 is not on DC Universe Infinite Forever Eternal app, (laughs) which, yeah, I can't can't fathom It's the only issue that isn't on there. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing in the book that, you know, I could figure out why it wouldn't be in. We'll get into it in a little bit, but the story has a lot of two page spreads. But I, I can't imagine that would be necessarily an issue for reproduction. I don't know. Bat Cousins, if you know, or f- even if you think you know why this book isn't on the app, I would love to hear it. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I, I have pondered that. I was trying to think, is there a rights issue with Ragman? But because the Ragman five issue series that this is Ragman's sixth appearance, right? He had his five issues of his own comic and then he shows up here. That's never been reprinted, but they've used Ragman plenty of times yeah. in other, you know, series. He was in Shadow Pack for, for many years post-crisis. I look him up. He only has about three or four appearances after this until yeah. Crisis. Yeah. But after Crisis, he's used, and it's, you know, the same guy, same origin with the rags and tattered shop. So I have no explanation for it. And he was on the Arrow show. Yes, he was. So, yeah, I don't know if it's... I mean, the Hunter story has been reprinted. The Batgirl and Robin, as we know, is in their omnibuses. I have no understanding why it has never been digitized. So, But we are going to get into the first story. So we'll leave plenty of pictures, Bat Cousins. We'll leave some extra (laughs) pictures this time on the website. And it is Batman and Ragman in Enter the Ragman. Our story cold opens as every good Batman story should with Batman smacking the crap out of a group of 'er ne'er-do-wells, this group stealing from a recently abandoned building. As Batman watches the police take care of his cleanup work from the roof, he also sees that Lois Lay... Oh, I'm sorry, Betty Bird taking photos of the crime scene. Batman also notices that someone was trying to prevent her from taking some good snaps. He follows her and her boyfriend, Roy Reagan, to his shop, Rags and Tatters, where they develop the film. In a completely fine, not creepy way at all, The Ebony Knight eavesdropper listens in to find out that several people have been forced to leave their places of residence and that Clark and, I'm sorry, Rory and Betty are working on an expose of this situation for the Washington Blade. Oh, I'm sorry, the Gotham Blade. Batman then visits Commissioner Gordon to let us know what happened previous to the cold opening of our story. So we're up to date. We then switch over to the man who bumped Betty. Hey, I got it right, Betty. Oh, anyway, we find out that the men who work at the Gotham Associates Realty Company, or GARC, are onto the fact that Rory and Betty are going to expose them. While Rory is doing more research than Professor Paul does, Betty is attacked by the GARC. We are then treated to a beautifully drawn, but really totally bonkers (laughs) origin of the Ragman. 
Just in time before the two heroes of our tale meet up on that beautiful terrace of the apartment, in the middle of the tree, in the middle of the building, in the middle of Gotham City. <laughs> in a scene never seen in comics before, our two heroes actually talk to each other instead of starting off fighting each other. Ragman telling Batman that Bruce Wayne is behind the crimes. Batman telling Ragman that Bruce is a great guy. He would never do anything like that. He's handsome, strong, tall, smells good. He gives treats to my dog Ace all the time. But this is comics, so after they talk, they have a really quick fight. Oh, comics. Ragman goes over to Gark headquarters, breaks up a poker game by breaking some skulls, and then Batman joins him. And they decide that instead of fighting the guy in charge, who looks exactly like Bob Chapek, they'll just scare him into submission. Two days later, Bruce shows up at Rags and Tatters to throw money at the problem. But in this case, that's actually a good thing. What did you guys think? We'll start off with Max. It was an interesting story. It was, I was a little surprised how intense the text is when you first, when the story first starts. It has a, almost like a real kind of Frank Miller, Dark Knight Returns vibe to it, but it beats it by about eight years. One thing that caught my eye was how many times real estate guys were the bad guys in comics and in superhero <laughs> stories not, not that i disagree <laughs> but... better than the buying of insurance on your partner sean by the way i bought a policy on you so. <laughs> yeah, I can exactly. It. exactly but yeah it was interesting to me how often that that trope comes up in the 70s i would have liked if the story i mean i understand this is an anthology story so there's not that much you don't have that much time to to get into things but i wish maybe the story had made just a little more sense <laughs> instead of being all thrown together <laughs> as an explanation when they find things out i guess i would have liked more detecting and more just kind of like you like you guys were saying you know oh you know bruce is a great guy i know that's not true and later on batman tells him oh because it was a shell company and they didn't know and they changed managers and we never get to see how that any of that how he right. figures that out and i don't think bruce is that tuned into the day-to-day -day at, at wayne industry but other than that i really like this story actually the action was really great golden is just so physical in the way he draws things he has a real kind of it reminds me of alan davis quite a bit there were a few things that that uh so details but we can get into that later but why was he so suspicious of the guy bumping to into a lady i mean i don't think <laughs> I don't that was a that was a big reaction from Batman just for some guy bumping into somebody and then he goes to the other people the people who got bumped he goes to, to spy on them which I don't understand yeah I yeah. don't know I, I, maybe it's just she he was curious what was on the camera that got picked that's what I thought that was a little weird too I really like it too I mean listen David V. Reed it was hit or miss for me, he was an older writer. He's also known as David Verne. I mean, he's okay. He's not Denny O'Neill. He's not Jerry Conway, right? But it, it was a, a decent story. Again, I agree with you, Max. I don't think it made sense everywhere. The one thing I didn't get, it was never clear to me why Batman was so angry at these thugs at the beginning. Like, he was really <laughs> angry at them. That's why you were getting the Dark Knight Return vibes from it, Max, because mm -hmm. that's not the Batman we've been seeing. We've been seeing more of the, the Denny O'Neill Batman the last couple of issues, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, other than that, the art is fantastic. We'll page through, and I, I got a couple of places to call out in the art. Those are my initial thoughts. How about you, Sean? I echo exactly what the two of you said. Music and comics are a collaboration medium there's always the argument which is more important words or music or words or pictures or that kind of thing i definitely think this story is carried by the art if this were not to jump in, if this were don heck doing this yeah 
<laughs> there's no way that this story would like have been good at all. <laughs> the other thing, and we kind of, I kind of talked about this earlier. I didn't even realize it until maybe halfway through, but the amount of two-page spreads yeah. in this is phenomenal. Mm. Like yeah. it just it elevates artwork even higher. Like it's just fantastic. I want to ask you guys regarding the two-page spreads. I have one that was totally misaligned. Pages 16 and 17. In your printed copy, are your pages 16 and 17 aligned properly? Or was mine just miscut? You definitely can see that it oh, is supposed like to be it is supposed to be a two-page spread. It's not lined up correctly, but you can see it is. Yours is just like mine that way. That's funny. Interesting. So we can walk through. So the story starts off Batman like literally like just wailing on these criminals. In terms of the Batman family comic, it is very violent. It's yeah. probably the most violence we've seen in the story. The first three pages is him beating up people, which we learn is a great thing <laughs> later on. <laughs> and then he calls the cops. And, and this part is really nice. And so Batman is calling it into the cops and he says, right, 55 Pine Street, send a wagon and three or three or four cars, make it a good show of it. I want the idea of a police presence firmly established in this neighborhood. So keep me out of it. I'll just stay on the roof. And I love that yeah, aspect. That's cool. And, in a couple pages, we'll find out why he says this. Then he's on top of the building. This is where he sees Betty and Rory, and she's taking pictures. Again, you only have a certain amount of pages. It would have made far much more sense if the bad guy took the camera. <laughs> Even if Betty would have grabbed it back and said, give it back. And then like he runs away or something like that. That would have made more sense than just like, an elbow to her arm. She has like an old time camera. You can take a hundred pictures with da -da 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 one flick of the finger. So yeah, I think that would have made more sense. Yeah, his logic, Batman's logic on page four is that was no accident. He purposely jostled her to prevent that picture. But why? I follow him. But by the time I get down to the street, it'd be too late. But he follows the other two instead. That, <laughs> that didn't yeah. make any sense at all to me. I do like like, and this is for our younger listeners, might not be obvious at first, but I do like that Batman notices that someone is taking pictures because in those days, it was not that common for people to be carrying cameras around. Oh. You know, not everyone yeah. has a camera in their pocket, but for someone to carry a film camera, like she's carrying like a professional looking camera, that was not that common. That is true. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I like that he observed that, which maybe is why he noticed the bumping and, you know, it, he's Batman. You know, he Maybe he knows when someone's faking it. Batman follows them to Rags and Tatters, Rory's shop. And when they're in the shop, the two of them are basically basil expositioning. <laughs> Story. <laughs> They're talking about all the places that have either burned out or pillaged, destroyed, how run down the neighborhood is. And then they're working on a documentary about that. That gives Batman the impetus to go to Commissioner Gordon. So everyone knows I love Michael Golden. I absolutely love Michael Golden. Probably even more than Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. name. However, I do have an issue with his Commissioner Gordon. I was going to see if he liked it. Because in my mind, Commissioner Gordon is Hal Linden, and I have a huge crush on Hal Linden anyway. But here, like, <laughs> Commissioner Gordon's kind of like, aren't she? And yeah, I am not mm -hmm. body shaming or whatever. I, that's just not the Commissioner Gordon I have in my mind. And this guy kind of is. He so looks that's, like a Commissioner Gordon who's sitting behind the desk all the time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So because I heap praise on Michael Golden deservedly in my mind, that one teaspoon of negativity or not liking it, whatever. When Batman is talking to Commissioner Gordon, that's when we got our flashback to really like the beginning of the story because he almost runs into a family probably at like three or four o'clock in the morning because they've been put out of their house by the criminals 
that Batman was attacking earlier in the story. So that comes full roundabout. We find that out. He also, and this is, he reinforces that like he wants to keep this quiet about his involvement because he wants the police, he wants them to know that the police are going to try to help them out. So then our story goes to the photo photography spoiler guy and then he contacts the Gark and then we see the Gark. And of course, these look exactly like 1940s like suit suit thugs courtesy of central casting <laughs> these guys don't even qualify for Gabriel's horn because they're like 1940s i love yeah. the shoes on the guy yes. on the shoes on page eight the black and whites and the other guys got the stripes and suspenders with the gun holsters i'm like man these guys are gangsters yeah <laughs> like, and the other guy's wearing a bow tie yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're well-dressed gangsters max that's right <laughs> the, the, only, like, the only thing that would have been more is say that see i tell you i tell you what's gonna happen like a, you gotta listen or you're gonna, gonna turn around <laughs> so i kind of mentioned it in my recap but page eight the second to last panel the guy at the desk bat cousins this is what professor paul goes through when he's doing his research for you so we'll we'll include that panel you know i just want to ask a question about page seven why is the family pulling a cart? I think that's all their stuff from their apartment. But this is supposed to be almost 1980, right? Did they get the cart the same place the gangsters got their clothes? I mean, this is very, <laughs> like, <laughs> very 1930s kind of stuff going it on is here. Like, yeah, it is very 1930s. Well, maybe they just couldn't afford a car or a rental. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. It's like a cart you'd see out of Oliver Twist or something. <laughs> yeah, so, it really is. Yeah. Well, you know, and there's, there's something else on this page that uh, you, you guys were going to talk about. He was how Bruce is kind of in, in the story he uses his money, his resources to kind of make things happen. In a way, I was kind of glad to see that because he uses his influence to call someone at the Gotham Blade mm -hmm. to get that story published. He he gives the family money so they have a place to stay for the night. The hotel, Later on, he gives money for a grant, I think, to the Rags and Tatters crew mm -hmm. and, you know, and all that stuff. Really interesting for them to kind of acknowledge that, you know, Bruce is rich <laughs> you know, instead yeah. of just kind of ignoring it. Instead of just spending it all on his gadgets. Right. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Yeah. You need the gadgets though. Don't get me wrong. Oh no, no. He's got plenty but, of gadgets. But he's got plenty to go around. That's right. <laughs> but yeah, then the gangster is pretty brutal on page nine. Yeah, catching up on page nine. Yeah. Yeah. yeah another thing from the 30s. You can see Betty has the bruise on her cheek. Yeah, it's a bad scene. Then they segue into Ragman's origin. <laughs> <laughs> So I guess I knew Ragman's origin because I've read this story. But yeah, I guess I always forget it because basically it's Rory's father and his friends who were a strong man, a heavyweight boxer, a marvelous acrobat, <laughs> find a mattress full of money. And then they decide that they're going to keep the money. But then gangsters come after them to get the money back. And then... The gangsters are shooting power lines <laughs> above them. The power lines come down. Not the men themselves, the power lines. <laughs> yeah, electrocuting the friends and Rory goes in and all of these abilities are trained. And Pat Cousins, I legitimately honestly believe that a man can be bulletproof and fly because he comes from another planet with different colored sun and gravity. I absolutely believe that. I absolutely believe someone can get bit by a radioactive spider and get those powers. Absolutely. So I don't know why I have such a disconnect with this, but for some <laughs> reason, I really... Now, I like Ragman. Like in the Arrow show, I thought he was fantastically cool. And I think he looks great here. Yeah. I wanted to read the five issues, but they're not on DC Universe. I think he looks fantastic. 
I don't know why I can't really get into the powers transferring. Because, like, even Flash, the chemicals and the lightning bolt, that, I believe, you know, quote, comic book belief, but for some reason. This is... The original series was all written by Robert Kaniger, right? And he had some kooky stuff. He did all the Wonder Tot and Wonder Girl and, and Wonder Woman stories okay. back in the 50s. <laughs> and he did it. He had a lot of wacky ideas, Robert Kaniger. But I, I just double checked that, that he was the one that wrote those. I read them years ago. I don't really remember them other than that. They were pretty wacky. He wrote like for the war books, right? Yeah, he wrote a lot of war books. He was an editor. Okay, so, he was an editor. He's a longtime DC guy. He, he... I guess I'm gonna forgive him then. <laughs> it's like he wrote for <laughs> war books and this is his superhero origin. That's okay now. <laughs> He's got some strange stuff. I think he also wrote The War That Time Forgot. Oh, okay. Okay. So yeah, so you know, it's he's still in line. I have to make a confession. This is the first time I have seen this origin. The only origin I knew before this was the whole suit of souls thing. Mm -hmm. So this is new to me. That's a post-crisis. Yeah. And I love it. This mm. is so comic books. <laughs> this is, you know, this is just, it makes absolutely no sense. You know, like, like Sean, I read this and I was like, what? So, okay. The bad guys shoot the power lines, not the, not the guys themselves. They shoot the power lines. So they get electrocuted. Rory tries to save them, creates a circuit, I guess. Everyone dies but him, but he gets their abilities. Attributes. Yeah, their attributes. Lightning hitting chemicals and turning Barry into the Flash. Yes. If the radioactive spider blading a 16-year-old boy could give him spider powers, the electricity hitting the boxer, the acrobat, and the, what was the other guy? Strongman. I'm like, wow. I'm just glad one of his dad's friends wasn't a juggler. <laughs> So then I do love the next part. Ragman shows up at Bruce Wayne's apartment. And this is his apartment at the Wayne Foundation in the middle of the tree, in the middle of the building, in the middle of Gotham City. And there's like a fantastic confrontation panel. Their capes are swinging out. Good Lord, the Batman, what are you doing here? And that's where they get into the crux of the story, how like Ragman figured out what was going on, that it's all like a front starting from Bruce Wayne and then coming coming out. Of course, Batman says, no, Bruce Wayne's a good guy. He's not going to do this. Now, and I do like that they meet and they don't start fighting right away. Because that's always the comic book cliche. They always start fighting right away. But here they actually do have a conversation. Now, of course, the conversation doesn't last too long. <laughs> because they do have like a little tussle that Batman says he let Ragman win. But I don't know. The Batman's face on page 15, that middle top panel. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> both that one and when he's nursing his jaw at the bottom of 14 he's like mm -hmm. ow that really hurt this guy's got a punch <laughs> i love that that panel at the bottom of 14 I, I honestly thought he had broken batman's jaw i mean that is <laughs> just hanging there i think isn't there it definitely is seen in a movie i think is it back to the future where like he punches him and the character's head kind of spins right into the camera maybe I'm, I'll, I'll have to do my own internal mind research i think they do do that i think that yeah that's what batman like the head spinning around <laughs> towards the camera that's what that reminds me i do think he lets ragman get away because he wants to see how he got in how he eluded the alarm systems that's a long crawl up the top of the Wayne Foundation building. He's got a long way to climb up that, that you know, that's like Spider-Man trying to climb up the Washington <laughs> Monument in the movies, you know, you're tired after a while, I would think. <laughs> then our story goes to the Gark. The Gark guys are playing poker and Ragman comes yeah, in. Because of course they are. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, really. It is great. This is another two-page spread and you really get the flow of action because like Ragman comes in and then like he backhands one of the guys. He goes after him. The guy lands on the floor and chuds his face in. <laughs> I, I love that. <laughs> Batman cracks the guy's head and yeah. then 
Batman and Ragman talk again, <laughs> which is awfully nice. <laughs> and then Batman says, hey, you know, technically Bruce Wayne was behind it, but hey, he didn't know what was going on because when he started it off, it was good and right and up front. And then a day or two later, <laughs> a year or two later, we don't know exactly how long, but then it all, the evil crept in. Mm-hmm. I guess you would say. But the main guy is getting away. And then the next one, the next one is neat because it is one page, but it is four times it's 12 panels. Yeah. And it is really neat. It, it's all there's no dialogue, but you see what's happening. Like the bad guy sneaks out. Radman's coming one way, Batman's coming another. He turns his head. The guy backs up it against the wall. And then you just see Batman and Ragman just looking at him. And then he just like probably starts crying. <laughs> Definitely <laughs> crying at the bottom there. And then our epilogue is at Rags and Tatters. You see the Gotham Blade has a great big headline wayne foundation uncovers massive land swindle rory and betty are talking about it and then in comes bruce wayne throwing around his money in the best possible way and i have to say i've always liked ragman as a concept but i never read anything that made me go like oh yeah i'm this is i'm into this this story actually you know for as critical as i was earlier this story actually really Kind of got me into Ragman. It's an interesting character. I think he looks great. Golden does a really good job of making him this kind of, he almost has like a Moon Knight vibe. Yeah. Sometimes he just has the hood and you can't see his face. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a good comparison. I think he looks great. You know, if I had seen this back in those days, I probably would have been looking for more (laughs) more Ragman stories. Coming soon to a podcaster near you. (laughs) No, 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 no. No, no, no. (laughs) Hey, I got to get everybody off this Superman family biz. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Ready to move on to the Bat Timeline? I think we are, yes. All right. In this segment, we're going to take a look at the other titles that were published this month and what all the Batman family is doing. Thanks, as always, to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. Now, these are comics that are on sale in July of 1978. I want to make a special note. We are now in the second month out of three of the DC Explosion. All the regular titles were expanded to include the eight-page backups with a cost increase to 50 cents. They went up from 35 to 50 cents in the Explosion. So we're in the middle of the explosion right now to give us our listeners some context. So what's our first Bat title this month, Sean? The first title is Batman number 304, and it is To Hell with Batman and Back. And it's a great cover. Batman is laying prone on the ground. Two criminals are above him with literally smoking guns. And then the ghostly image of Batman is above That's great. There's also a backup feature, which is the public life of Bruce Wayne. And that is The Amazing Secret of Dr. Dundee. I always liked Dr. Dundee, but now they just sort of merged him into Alfred because Dr. Dundee knew his secret and would treat his injuries. And now now Alfred can do all that because Alfred can do everything else. I actually had no idea who Dr. Dundee was before before this very second you said that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he was in probably a dozen stories, I wouldn't bet. There is no issue of Brave and the Bold and no issue of Detective Comics this month. But there was DC Special Series number 15, otherwise known as the Batman Spectacular. This was a special dollar comic, had three Batman stories in it, including the infamous, quote, wedding of Batman and Talia, and the Marshall Rogers illustrated prose story, Death Strikes at Midnight and Three. Now, Sean, I know you recently acquired this book and were unimpressed. So clue me in on that, because I always, and I haven't actually read it for a while, but I'm curious to hear your opinion of this book. I was a little, just a little, little disappointed. I had wanted this for the longest time, for whatever reason, never got it. Now, Death Strikes at Midnight and Three, I had that collected, I guess, the greatest Batman stories ever. Oh, yeah, yeah, I think think it's in there, yeah. My guess is that. And then I thought the other two stories were Michael Golden, but they're not. The Rachel Gultalia story, that is Michael Golden. 
The other story is Michael Nasser. Yeah. I guess I was a little bit disappointed with that. Although when I looked at it again, I, I actually think that Mike Nasser art is good. But I think when you're expecting Golden and you get that, it's like a little. Nasser was like a budget Neil Adams. He was trying to ape Neil Adams. It wasn't as good. Talking negatively about Mike Nasser kind of doesn't seem fair. Right now, I'm looking at pages from it and it is good art. I don't know if I want to, but I think I could say great art. It, it looks great. I think my issue is like I was expecting Golden. And mm-hmm. I do like the golden art in the Rachel Gould story. And I really like Rachel Gould a lot. Mm-hmm. But the story story in that, I just, I don't know. I just did not like that story for whatever reason. And I can't, I can't really put my finger on it. We'll allow it. Part of it is because Rache is in his super suit. And I don't, I don't like that at all. And it's funny because I love superhero outfits, but Rachel Gould, I just think needs to be in his suit. It's kind of like that Vandal Savage, that green oh, yeah. leotard from like All-Star Con- I don't like that at all. And, and I love leotards and stuff like that. But they're just cert- some certain characters I just think doesn't serve their character well to wear that. Fair enough. Now, yeah, he needs a suit and cape. Now, the next thing we're going to talk about is Justice League of America number 159. And this is Crisis from Yesterday. And man, we always talk about the secret society of supervillains having like 153 characters. <laughs> <laughs> this has twice that. It's the team up of the Justice League and the Justice Society. But then you have a bunch of old tiny characters. So there's Jonah Hex and Enemy Ace. And those two, like I knew. But then it's Miss Liberty and Viking Prince. And I don't know who that other person is. The Black uh, Pirate. Black Pirate. Yeah, I didn't know who that was. <laughs> Last appearance in all American comics number 102. <laughs> so I love the JLA, JSA team-ups. This one in particular isn't one of my favorites. I think I do like Jonah Hex. But in terms of old-timey characters, I think that's probably... Well, it's weird because they were all from different times. I don't know if it inspired, maybe Chris Franklin knows, whether it inspired that time travel episode on the Justice League animated series. You know, where Oh, they... but that I like. Yeah. <laughs> I do like that. But these are people from all different times. And then Batman was also in Super Friends number 14. And that is with the Elementals, not the Pixar movie, but a different group of characters. And then it also has the origin of the Wonder Twins. Which you thought the origin was the three-part story Justice League team up. But no, 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 no. It's a pre-origin even before that. We also have World's Finest Comics number 253. So it's another dollar comic, another awesome Jim Aparo cover with Superman unmasking Batman. The story going along with that was pretty crazy. Written by Bob Haney, naturally. According to Mike's Amazing World, it was the last... Last appearance of Julie Madison. So I'm going to assume last Mm. pre-crisis because kind of think she's been back since then. But we also get Green Arrow and Black Canary. We get the Creeper and, of course, Shazam. So good stuff. That's it for the bat appearances. Max, what's on your list from this month? Well, so many things are on my list. (laughs) <laughs> on my Let's list. hear them. Let's hear them. I was looking at these things. No, well, I, I pared it down, you know, <laughs> just to keep things moving. First up, of course, is Human Fly number 14. Yeah. Which comes out this month. It's fantastic. This is why I do a podcast about Human Fly. Plug, plug. Yeah. No, that's, you know, that's the uh, Death Defying Human Fly cast here on the Fire and Water Network. I mean, look at that cover. It's the Human Fly over Manhattan holding on to dirigible. Who is Bob Lubbers who did this cover? I've never even heard of him. He shows up a couple of times in this series. Series, but for the most part, yeah, he did not do a whole lot. It's interesting. That's a it's a wonderful cover. Wow, he's got six comic book credits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he did not do a whole lot. Fascinating. So of course that's at the top of my list. 
Also, I would go with Ghost 69. I was big into horror, especially as a kid. I still am. But I used to love these kinds of comic books. And there is a treasure trove of horror comics out this month. So there's Ghost. There's Ghostly Tales from Charlton. There's Ghost Manor, also from Charlton. Haunted, House of Mystery, House of Secrets, The Witching Hour. There's just so it was many. really oh. a genre back then, wasn't it? Yeah, it's really amazing. It really was. It really was. And there was some great stuff and wonderful covers that would have drawn me in but i think just that big ghosts at the top of the cover probably would have won me over even though you really couldn't go wrong in those days just because it was it was good stuff and my final pick actually would be okay so this is 1978 this is a year after star wars came out mm-hmm. i was big into star wars i was one of that first generation that just all in on star wars so this month was the marvel special edition number three which was the complete star wars story Mm-hmm. If I had the money or if I could have wheedled it out of my parents, I definitely <laughs> would have wanted that. No question. No question. So this is like a proto-trade paperback. There's six issues mm-hmm. in this, right? Because yeah. the first two were half in one and half in another. This is a pretty cool addition for sure. Yeah. And just there's so many other things. There's uh, Spectacular Spider-Man. There's Ghost Rider. Jonah Hex, which is something else that I was, for some reason, I was very into Westerns <laughs> at that time. So Jonah Hex would have also been on my list. Who is also, you know, hanging from a balloon for some reason. So, <laughs> you have a type, Max. You have I a type. Got a t- I got a type, you know. <laughs> if, you, if you're hanging from a balloon, I'm there. So yeah, I mean, just a lot of good stuff this month. Normally, I have like 23 books that I get. There weren't a lot this time. So Action Comics 488, Superman Battles, Microwave Man. Okay, Microwave Man. <laughs> this, this is exact. So I've never read this story. I have no idea. I'm sure it's horrible. This is where it comes into being good versus what you like. I know that Microwave Man outfit is not a good outfit, <laughs> but I would say that I love it. I hope someone cosplays this and I see them because <laughs> I will run up to them. It's not even like a Grimbor thing or like yeah, a no, cosplay. Yeah. No, it's, I don't know why, but I, I do like it. <laughs> so I think it has something to do with the covers done by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Oh, there yeah, we go. Yeah. He's the only guy that could make Microwave Man look cool. That is quite a costume. He's got a little, <laughs> he's got a little Scarlet Witch thing going on. I know, yeah, it's got yeah, Scarlet Witch. Yeah. And it's all yellow. <laughs> Hello, man. And, and even like the MW, I love the fact that the M and W are connected, but even then, it's just like a line. It's not even like. <laughs> but there I are microwaves, Sean. I don't, I don't, I don't know why, but I do love that outfit. Yeah. And you have Airwave on the on the cover also. <laughs> and that, you know, that's a little confusing because that MW and that AW, and I don't know. DC, you tried to make Airwave happen. Absolutely. <laughs> airwave fans cannot fault DC <laughs> no. for the lack of Airwave because they, they tried. tried hard they tried yeah yeah. my next one is amazing spider-man 185 and that is peter parker's graduation the most demanded story of them all i don't know if that (laughs) (laughs) we demand to see his diploma (laughs) my next pick is firestorm number five and this is the original run this is the last issue of Mm -hmm. firestorm until he was brought back in dc comics presents and then the justice league my next one is flash number 266 flash is jumping out of his boots and you would think that's why we like it because we always talk about we like to see when a hero is like out of their costume or see how the costumes put together i don't have this issue but kid flash the case of the missing super speed the pose on the cover is fantastic because you see someone super speeding past kid flash and he's like stop wait yeah he <laughs> stole like, my super speed yeah i want to see what's well, going on i thought with you this. were going to say because he jumped out of his boots are melted to the ground by heat wave right yeah so heat wave yeah is- 
melted his boots to the ground. So the flash jumps out and he has tights that go all around as opposed yeah. to just stopping you know, at the like socks or yeah, socks yeah. or stopping. I thought yeah. that was interesting that he's got the red tights under his boots. The last book that I picked, it absolutely makes no sense why I do not have this book. And I've looked on eBay and I don't even think it's really particularly expensive. I don't know why I haven't pulled the trigger and gotten it, but I am a huge, 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 huge fan of Saturday Night Live. Even mm. going back from the beginning, when I was a little kid, quote unquote, too young to watch it, I would yep. watch Saturday Night Live. And it's Marvel Team Up number 74, Spider-Man with the Not Ready for Primetime Players, the cast of Saturday Night Live. There's no reason why I don't have this book. I should have this book. I should also get the one with David Letterman. I should get yep. that one too. But Saturday Night Live. And people are like, oh, the first cast is the best cast. Okay, that's not really true. If you watch those first shows, they're not all great. I love the original cast. My favorite cast is probably Jan Hooks and Phil Hartman right in there. A lot of it has to do with when you kind of start watching Saturday yeah. Night Live. But, and, and I'm not denigrating the first five years because the first five years are fantastic and really laid the groundwork for almost everything that would come after. But I should really get this issue. Yeah, it's pretty fun. I love how they have Spider-Man and Stan Lee and the NBC logo, the NBC on the, logo. in the cover box. <laughs> in the Marvel cover box. <laughs> I think now that Disney owns both Marvel and ABC, we're not going to see that. Let me see. Has that been reprinted? Now, Mike doesn't always have the reprint credits for Marvel comics, so I don't know. And while you check on that, there is another one that I actually forgot to mention, and that's the great Superman book in soft cover. Yeah. And I had it mm -hmm. in soft cover. Yeah. And that comes out this month. And I had that in the Batman book. They were great. They were fantastic. For the time, it was not to denigrate the books, but they were like Wikipedia for yeah. your Superman and Batman histories. And yeah. they were fantastic. All right. So now I got a couple. My quest to find an actual good gold key comic. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was going to pick up Boris Karloff's Tales of Mystery. So this is another one where the story can't possibly be as cool as the cover. The cover copy says, an angry oath sworn six centuries ago spawns the great flood of Florence. <laughs> <laughs> you know, do either of you guys read books like this? I only got them if there was nothing else. Yeah. I just look at it. I'm like, man, what is that story about? All right, enough of that. Fantastic Four 199 is the build up to the big Mr. Fantastic Doctor Doom battle in 200 by Marv Wolfman and Keith Pollard. We won't talk about 200 because it'll happen in the off month next month. Sean, you talk often about villains that we thought were a big deal, but they weren't really. Green Lantern, Green Arrow 109, there's the villain Replicon, who I thought was a big deal because when the, that series came back, he was one of the early villains there. And then he came back again. I'm like, oh, he must be like the Joker to Green Lantern, right? <laughs> and Replicons. But you also get a Golden Age Green Lantern backup story with art by our bat cousin Juan Ortiz. I remember being a kid being confused by invaders 33 thor versus the invaders what it blew my mind hitler summoned the ghost of thor or something and it was a way to use the thor character because they were linking the sort of norse mythology with the german efforts and then of course thor figured out that well, what's going on but it was not really the same thor but it was the same it was, it was pretty wild i mean invaders as always is a wild place. The other one I liked on TV, New Terry Tunes, number 52, starring Mighty Mouse. I have no idea what's going on in this cover either. You've got Mighty Mouse crashing through the ceiling to confront a bad guy cat with a strange flower on his lapel. 
<laughs> and the love interest is mouse is tied up with a robot behind her about to hit some button. So, <laughs> <laughs> and then finally, I did not have and have never seen the odd comic world of Richard Corbin, a Warren adult fantasy publication. I'm sure I didn't have it because of the naked woman on the front being <laughs> saved question mark by a presumably naked or loincloth man on a horse. I have never seen that. I'm just curious. Where was this sold? This is not in 7-Elevens. This was not it's in a newsstands. Trade paperback. This is a trade paperback. So yeah, I guess I, it was. I don't know where this was saw. I've never even heard of it before, but I thought that was a good one to end on. But of course, our trip to the newsstand is not complete. And man, talk about being rich. You're going to need to be rich to get all of the Richie Rich comics. <laughs> Lately, it's been sliding a little with like only 183 titles. <laughs> the last couple have been like eight or 12. Eight? Teen <laughs> rich comic books. Eighteen, wow. it's unbelievable. I wonder. I wonder if maybe because it was summer and more <laughs> kids had off school. Maybe eighteen is over for a week. <laughs> I'm like, who buys all these Richie Rich comic books? That's how you get rich. You corner the market. Uh, <laughs> one of the digest, Richie Rich's Vacation Digest, Sean. So I have to mention that. Oh, and there's another digest, Richie Rich's Digest Stories. I didn't even notice that they were digests. There are two of them that are digests. And then I, I love how his butler named Cadbury. He, he gets one, Richie Rich and Cadbury. <laughs> and Richie Rich's Bank Books. I, I, don't, I don't get it. <sighs> all right. Ready to move on? Absolutely. All right. We're going to move on to... To the second story in this comic starring Batgirl and Robin with guests, Red Tornado and Elongated Man. It is called Peril of the Power Sower. That is tough to say. It is a 20-pager written by Bob Rosakis, our bat cousin, illustrated by Don Heck with inks by John Salardo, and of course reprinted in our two favorite on the buy. Okay, we start off with Robin, who's forgotten all about last issue's troubles at Hudson University, so he can rush to Batgirl's help in our nation's capital. Does he use his groovy van or the Robin cycle to get there? Nope. He hitches a ride on the JLA transporter. But then rather than immediately beaming to DC, he is brought aboard the satellite where he gets a briefing from Elongated Man on the situation. It seems Red Tornado had also been in the area and encountered a giant armored man called the Power Sower, siphoning off all the electricity in the power station, leaving the residents of Washington with no AC on the hottest day of the year. That's like a Tuesday in Texas, right, Max? Happens all the time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, Robin beams down to the power plant without Ralph, of course, who has to stay behind for the all-important monitor duty. There he finds the red tornado out cold or out of power and Batgirl encased in a Kirby Crackle energy cocoon. Babs gives him another flashback about her encounter with the power sower, while Dick figures out a way to free her. He eventually creates a way to siphon the electricity away from the trap, and Babs is freed. They beam ready up to the satellite for Ralph to take care of him and go after the power sower. The power sower goes on all the TVs and says that he is doing this because America is using too much energy. Robin and Batgirl appreciate the point, but no, he's not going about it quite right. So they hatch a plan where Robin goes back to the power plant to shut off the power he is siphoning. Batgirl tries to keep him occupied, but the plan doesn't work as he is too much for her alone. He is about to blast her when she is saved by the timely arrival of a recharged red tornado. The power sower sets fire to an apartment building to distract our heroes. Then we get a real hero moment for Reddy in the strongest art of the story, in my opinion. He flies in and out of the building at super speed, saving all the residents. Babs and Dick now try the backup plan. They replace their bat rope with wire, and they each throw it at his arms at the same time, creating a short circuit. 
Not sure I completely understand it, but hey, it seems <laughs> clever from a comic book science perspective. We then get a treat as the Rosakis Roundup takes place in the JLA satellite. Turns out the seven-foot-tall power sewer was a five-foot young woman activist descended from Betsy Ross. By the way, <laughs> she was also a tech genius who built a suit. She should have just gotten a job at Stark Industries, but whatever. Babs invites the guys out for coffee, but Robin suddenly remembers his problems at Hudson. Reddy says, I don't drink coffee. And Ralph says, nope, I still got monitor duty. The end. <laughs> Max, what do you think of the peril of the power sower? Believe it or not, I think this was my favorite story of, <laughs> in the wow. issue. It was, well, it's, it's my favorite story in terms of it being a story. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's really kind of just a uh, one and done. <laughs> Listeners, you can't see Sean. His mouth is still not up from the table. But... <laughs> I kind of like the characterization. I like Robin, who is, at this point, is becoming his own person. You know, yeah. he, he's moving away from being Robin. This is he's transitioning into becoming his own hero. He'll be Nightwing eventually. Blah blah blah. And you kind of see this because he's kind of bossy. <laughs> he hitches a ride from the from the JLA, and then he kind of you know is snapping his fingers at Elongated Man, saying, "Hey, I, yeah, I got to go." I love that part. <laughs> Come on, he's Elongated Man. That's what Robin's like. Listen, dude. <laughs> I feel the same way about Elongated Man. This is, it's called plastic ass for a reason. The, and I kind of liked that it was this whole thing i mean because earth day and the whole conservation movement kind of started in 1970 and in, in april mm -hmm. 1970 was the first earth day so i kind of like that they are reflecting that real world concern what was becoming more of a real world you know these things that people were thinking about in the whole solar power thing you know which i thought was kind of funny actually it made me laugh when he said solar power i'm like okay so you're gonna see you in a couple of hours when you recharge <laughs> but I, I liked power sower as a bad guy i hated his name her name, but I but I like the I like the idea of the character. But that Betsy Ross thing really <laughs> that, was, that was that really made me go. All right, I'm out. Uh, that was that was it. That was too much. Rosakis went just a little too far. How about you, Sean? Bat cousins, I want to prove to you what I think of the story. So in 2020, I decided to do a reread of all of Batman Family. I'm almost positive it was even before I knew I was doing the podcast. I wanted to reread everything. Obviously, I had read every issue before, probably not issue after issue, but like over time, you know, certainly read each and every one several, several, several times. In 2020, when I started reading Batman Family, if you'd have told me there's a story with Batman robbing Elongated Man and Red Tornado, I would have said, no, you're thinking of some other book, because I have no memory <laughs> of this story whatsoever. <laughs> You so just then, <laughs> in 2020, I would have read this story. So in prep for this episode, I read it and I'm like, I don't remember any of this stuff <laughs> happening at all. That's what I think of this story. I, this story is nothing to me. Oh, that's I, I remember Robin commandeering the transporter. That I like. I mean, the art is pretty bad. Maybe talking mm. about this on Zoom with two humans will like cement it in my memory that I have read this story. <laughs> I still don't know that that's going to happen. I will tell you one thing right off the top of the bat. That name, Power Sour, Power Sower, <laughs> it is horrendous. It is atrocious. Oh my God. You know what? I am sorry, Sean. I have to interrupt you. Is that supposed to be a pun? Is that sower like Betsy Ross? Yeah, it's like I didn't even sower. think of sower. You, you, oh my God. <laughs> it's you reap what you sow and right. she is like a oh, sower. Oh, Bob. But the, but oh, the problem Bob. with that, but wow. the problem with that oh. is your reaction makes me 
actually like that. <laughs> but the problem is, it's printed words. They don't rhyme. Power sower. It's only because it's printed together, like on top of each other, yeah. that you yeah. get what it's supposed to be. And then sometimes you don't even get that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Bat cousins, you might think my microphone is about to cut out because this is probably the most quiet I am ever going to be in a story <laughs> recap. When we get to, I think, the one panel I like, I'll chirp up and talk about it. But other than that, I promise you, I am here at the reunion. I have not left. There's been no technical <laughs> issues. I am still here. Let's get into the recap. So, yeah, let's go through. I mean, the first page, it's Don Heck trying to do what Michael Golden did with Morgan Le Fay a few issues ago. Let's just say Don Heck, not Michael Golden. You get the flashback of Red Tornado getting clobbered by the power sower. Then Robin goes up to the satellite. I don't know. There's not much to say. He comes down to the power station and there's Batgirl floating in this cocoon. Which obviously takes a lot of energy. Why would the power sower be wasting that energy to keep her like that? Doesn't make a lot of sense. And then here's a funny thing. We finally figure out why Robin's phone exploded. I wanted to know how the science of this works. So she calls him at the end of last issue. He had all that bad day. She calls him up. I need your help. And then the power sower sends a blast to the phone, which crashes the phone, which apparently that wave traveled all the way up <laughs> to Hudson University and broke Dick's phone, right? I'm- thinking like like yeah. the atom like the atom like the atom, the atom travels on the phone okay all right wires. all right all right i guess so because i be, remember being confused several times about why his phone exploded well I, I remember in those days they used to talk about and of course everyone's using a rotary phone on a wire which is i love modern yeah. technology at the time i remember they used to tell us not to use the phone during a thunderstorm yeah yeah, that uh, is true. So, uh, yeah. so I don't know if it's like that yeah. kind of idea or, or what's going on. You might be onto something there, Max. You have completely changed my mind about this entire story. <laughs> <laughs> So if you look at the art on page nine, it looks like it's a page from the Super Friends comic. How dare you, sir? <laughs> oh my no, but, God. But, but think about it. You've got the rounded corners. I like the Super Friends comic. I love it too. Don't get me wrong. Now Rob's going to be mad at me again. But if you look at it, you got the rounded corners. The villain, he's very sort of simplistically designed with his face like that at the top. I'll accept the rounded corners. Well, these panels look like they could come out of a Super Friends comic. I don't know. I'll include this page so people can see. The rounded corners. <laughs> Corners, okay, I that I can get. I don't know, just remind the me. The rounded corners, but that's it. I did like the joke Robin makes on page 11. He says, hey, it's getting hot. That's one advantage I got from wearing shorts. <laughs> okay, I like that one. Okay, I did like that. Yes, yes. That and, good. and I did like that Batgirl's like sweating. Like, yeah, that, yeah, like yeah, yeah. That's that. a nice so touch. That, yeah. I agree with that. So then they're on the bike. They go after the guy. Then Robin turns around and goes back. That seemed a little like they were trying to pat it out there. Right. I like how the army's like, hey, we'll let you super guys have a crack at him first before the army goes out. That doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> and, and, the super, and, and it's Batgirl and Robin. It's not like it's Superman showed up. <laughs> Well, you know what? And that's something that I thought was kind of funny is that that little detail of when Batgirl is calling Robin, she's not calling Robin for him to come help. She's saying maybe Robin can get in touch with Superman. Yeah. And I thought that was yeah. <laughs> that was kind of interesting. She's like, hey, I can handle this. <laughs> I like that she doesn't mention it. Like, oh, no, no, I wasn't trying to call you. Let's jump to page 16. So this was, okay. I thought, the best art. It's basically a three-quarter splash. The building is on fire at the top of the page and Red Tornado is going in and you see some Several shots of him picking kids up out of there and stuffing fires out and grabbing people. 
sending them down on a like a slide of wind or something like, like an air cushion <laughs> yeah air cushion that, i thought something. that was very clever i love that part yes yeah very clever his determination on his face i thought his face looked good yes. there i did like that page at least that three quarters page that's like the most best use of red tornado for a while <laughs> frankly mm -hmm. so yes. he did a good job there leaving of course then on the following pages batgirl and robin to short circuit the villain and that's it holy switcheroo says robin at the end and she's like what holy switcheroo and he's like uh sorry bg i thought i cured myself of doing that that was cute i like that yeah i want to go back to that panel that was a great panel that was my favorite part of the story in yeah, art wise yeah. it's really well done i'll make another confession here i actually don't hate red tornado like the way a lot of people do no, <laughs> I, 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 I i like him yeah he never got anything really good to do in my yeah yeah i think that was a big part of the problem which is a shame because he's an interesting character with an interesting power set well and also for me it's easier i didn't grow up reading avenger stories so i don't have the vision comparison mm -hmm. and i could see where he would pale yeah. in comparison to vision but i never had that growing up right. i think he's fine probably really is the case with every single character all they need is a great writer who loves them story. and will mm -hmm. give them a good story and mm -hmm. then they could be the, a Agreed. great character I absolutely mm -hmm. believe that was every character. And, you know, and I like that, and you said it's basically a, a quarter page splash. And I like that his tornado effect, I guess, mm -hmm. his winds. You could tell that the artist was trying to do kind of what Jack Cole would do with Plastic Man, where the, his mm -hmm. body shape would lead you from one part of the image to another. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he's kind of doing that with this, with the, the, wind, the whirlwind. Yeah, you know, he's, yeah, yeah he's using that to lead from one image to the other. And it's not completely effective, but it works pretty well. And it brings the whole image together. And it's kind of neat to see Red Tornado in, in action like this. I mean, he's single-handedly saving everybody in that building. I know, that's really cool. It's like something the Flash would do. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I did some research, by the way. You were asking Ooh. about that high-tension wire thing that, yeah. that Robin does to free Batgirl out of her power cocoon and all yeah. that. I was like, what is a high-tension wire anyway? And I've always heard it. I never looked it up that is exactly what the high tension wire is for it's for very simplistically kind of completing an electrical circuit okay and so that's why it would actually work to drain off energy like that and it's also why it would work on the power sore because they basically had him in a circuit with him he was feedbacking into himself with that wire max bring in the science <laughs> bring in the science to the reunion i'm sure there's some engineers out there who are going to tell me i'm full of it but yeah you but get that's, an that's extra slice of pie <laughs> <laughs> I try. I try. Wow. <laughs> on that positive note, let's leave this story on a positive note. You have something else to say? I guess should I give my negative first? Because I, I have a positive and a negative. Go for it. <laughs> so on the very last page of the story, story page 20, the word epilogue, how the panels curve in to fit mm. that epilogue. I do yeah, think that looks cool. nice. And the letters of epilogue, especially the G. I like that a lot. So I can't imagine that he still listens, but Bob Rosakis, I do love you. Your stories have meant so much to me over the years. It absolutely is true. I don't understand your hesitancy to give people, especially villains, names, because we don't know the name of this woman other than she's a descendant of Betsy. You're right. Class. We don't know her actually. That is true. Yeah. We didn't know the five gadget bandit. What was the... We don't know his name either. We don't wow. know Snafu's name. We don't know. Yeah. Like Betsy Ross 4 or something by this point? I don't know. Betsy <laughs> Ross 4. 
<laughs> the women at the Dollars of the American Revolution meeting are going to be so upset about this. Ready to go, Sean? Okay. The third story is Private Eye Man Bat, starring Man Bat with guests Jason Bard and Batman. It's 13 pages. It's written by Bob Rosakis, penciled by Michael Golden, inked by Joe Rubenstein, and it was later reprinted in Legends of the Dark Knight, Michael Golden hardcover from 2019. Man Bat in Private Eye Man Bat. Man Bat drops by Gotham to ask Batman if he can use him as a reference to get a job with Jason Bard, private investigator. Kirk then goes for his job interview with Jason and does an incredibly bad job of telling Jason what he'll add to the agency. Jason makes his way to a rural area of Long Island where he is immediately caught and about to be shot when Kirk shows up, which allows Jason to knee one of the bad guys in the belly. Unfortunately, Jason is captured and has a gun to his head, but then tips Kirk off to his plan and Kirk Louisville sluggers the bad guy's head. <laughs> a plane that was supposed to rendezvous with the bad guys takes a detour, but Kirk pops his miracle, sprouts wings, brings down the plane, and is finally hired by Jason. <laughs> What did you guys think of the story? We'll start with Max. Wow. This story left me with a lot of questions, most of them starting with why. I will answer each and every one of them in a 20-minute dissertation. But for the most part, I enjoyed it. Michael Golden is just born to draw Man Bat. We need to think of uh, whatever, Michael Glorious Golden or yeah. something. Because, yeah. Scree be his name. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just every image of Man Bat is so great. It's good enough to let me ignore that this is kind of a lightweight story. Not, you know, not a lot is happening. Not a lot is moving forward, except that it closes out the promise of in the previous issue of Man Bat going. Well, I need to make some money. I know I'll be a private eye, <laughs> and then kind of following through on that, which you know, good for him. Why doesn't Kirk tell Jason Bard that he's Man Bat like right from the beginning? I mean, that's top of resume, right? Because <laughs> otherwise, it'd be a two-page story instead of thirteen-page story, Max. I think it's simple as that. <laughs> exactly. I like Michael Golden's use of shadows. Yes, and it works so well yes. with this character and in mm -hmm. this story. It also helps him avoid having to draw backgrounds since everything is at night and everything is black <laughs> behind him for the most part. It just looks so good. And the story is very straightforward. It's, he's, in a sense, auditioning for Jason Bard. And in the end, it's like, oh, it's a Casablanca moment. Like I said, it's a little light for me. But the art is just phenomenal. I don't have much to add. I got a couple of funny notes on some of the details. The story is a way for Man Bat to team up with Jason Bard because Bob Rosakis figured, hey, I got these two characters. You know, I like using Jason Bard. He's not going out with Babs. Hey, why don't I put him in the Man Bat strip? And what would they? So it's a way to get to that end and for Michael Golden to showcase his artistic skills. This is it. This is it. Ah, this time I know it's the real thing. <laughs> I can't explain what I'm feeling. Oh my God, this is it for me. This is where it starts. <laughs> Private Eye Man Bat, this is my Man Bat. Oh my God, I love it. Love it, love it, love it, love it, love it. The artwork is phenomenal. I think this is spectacular. I love that it's a little bit lighter. Figuring out the crime or anything like that definitely takes a back seat to him getting the job. 
it absolutely makes no sense that he wouldn't tell him he's man back. He's you know, going to tell like, him anyway. Exactly. It's not like a Clark and Lois kind of, he can't know. He was going to do it anyway. Yeah, that's what it doesn't make sense. It makes no sense and I don't care. If we're going to start going through the man bat semi logo at the top of pages yeah. two and three with man bat screen out to the yep. right. I mean, wow, isn't that a cool, with a great image of man bat below. This page spread is really pretty. So I don't know specifically that Michael Golden did that logo. I think he probably did. My love for Michael Golden is 10 million times infinity. Absolutely. So if I ever say anything negative, I think that's allowable. A man bat logo needs to have sharp edges. That would be my quote unquote complaint. However, like man bat coming from behind, I love that. But it needs to have more sharp edges. It is a two page spread, but it's a completely different two page spread than the two page spreads he, were, right. he was doing before. It's not broken up into even thirds. You have mm -hmm. the quote unquote middle, which is man bat. But then there's kind of like a skinnier panel on the right hand side. And that's Batman beating up the Gotham gorillas. And then on the left is the Gotham skyline and all that. It looks so fantastic. And it'd be so easy to do equally thirds, but it's not. I, I love that part. Mm -hmm. It looks very street level. Yes. Did you notice on the marquee that Larry Hama and Carrie Burkett are acting? on stage tonight. I thought that yeah. was kind of cute. Yeah, that was, that was neat. And then you go through. So the next page is super cool. In a scene reminiscent of the shotgun sniper, you see a guy up on yes. the roof and man bats swooping in. Not only does he kick him, but then he lifts him up, takes him way, 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 super, super <laughs> high up in the air and, and drops him. And catches him right at the bottom. Oh! <laughs> and that man about swoops in guys i love it, love it. And then he drops him at that man's feet and batman's like hey man Bat, what's going on <laughs> man that's well batman i need you to do me a solid but we don't know exactly what that solid is so I, I guess it's probably michael golden i guess we also have to complain you know how brad pitt has the thing where like he can't tell people by their faces i forget what that's called Apparently, Michael Golden has something similar where he can't tell the size of rooms and buildings because Jason Bard, as a private investigator, lives in a palatial mansion right by the water. I don't know that he could have afforded that. So I think maybe he has some kind of thing. Man, that was flying around in a maternity ward, and it's like a subway station, and their apartment. So I kind of think that that's my guess with that. Yeah, I was going to comment on that, that. That's something Brett Young would love because he loves how their apartment is so gigantic. So Jason lives in a, in a 17 bedroom, 14 bath mansion on the water. With columns. It's got columns. Real estate must be cheap. There's a dock. There's a dock out there. Or, yeah. or maybe he got a loan. Maybe he got a loan from the Girk. I don't know. <laughs> Kirklands. And... But wait, you forgot the best part of that. He pulls the compressible shirt. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. compressible and shoes. shoes. <laughs> Isn't that a Superman gag? Isn't that how he puts his how Superman puts stuff in his cape? The shoes right? I could kind of understand because do you guys know what aqua socks are? Oh my god, I love them. And they're basically they're like what I use as quote unquote slippers, although I much prefer to go barefoot. Anytime mm -hmm. I have to like go outside, I put my aqua socks on, and it's just like this thinnest sole, but then there's material around it. You use it when you're walking around like a pool, but oh my god, I love it. So I am not affiliated with the aqua socks company. <laughs> and in fact, I don't know what brand mine are. I've only had to buy them twice, but then Kirk knocks on the door 
door. Jason answers. And it is funny because it's, hey, I want to be a private investigator. I can't tell you. I'm like, I can't tell you. He just... Like, has no experience or anything. You owe me because you thought I was the shotgun sniper, man. (laughs) (laughs) And you're rich. You got coffee. Yeah, I love that. He is enjoying that coffee so much. (laughs) Yeah. That must be one hell of a cup of coffee. I will say, though, again, Bat Cousins, I think you know I love Michael Golden, so I guess I don't have to say it 10,000 times. But I do kind of think Kirk's face when he's loving the coffee (laughs) and Kirk's face in the very next panel. I don't know that that's the same person. I know it's the person. (laughs) I don't know that it's the same person. Although maybe Kirk has O face in that instance. So that, I don't know. So Jason's like, hey, this sounds like a great idea. I'm definitely, air quoting, definitely, definitely going to ask Batman about this the next time we're hanging out together. But (laughs) I have something to do. It amazes me because Kirk changes into Man Bat to follow Jason because he tells him he has to do something. I am very surprised that Jason really does have something to do. <laughs> just want to send that to get, to get rid of him, but he's far more honest than I am. So he does have something to do. He goes out to Long Island. Man, that's flying around behind him. And this is funny. So a lot of times I go to my grandkids' baseball games, and of course. Not that I am bored watching my grandson's baseball games, because of course I never would be, but often they're like birds flying way up high. I think it would be neat to be that high up because you'll get to see anything. And that made me think about that when man, that's like <laughs> flying so high up because he can see like everything that's going on. So he sees that Jason gets captured by what we learn is part of the Gotham gorillas. But Jason is super cool. He puts his knee up to some guy and pulls him over. And then Kirk is there and it's fantastic because Kirk has like this piece of wood <laughs> stick thing yeah. and he's got no shirt on <laughs> and he smacks these people around like he, I guess like did, did Splinter in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles he had like a bow staff right or Robin like I, like he's just like not Rafiki in the Lion King like he's like hitting these people with this stick which I love that and in fact I wish he would have this stick when he's flying around because that would be cool they see the plane so the plane somehow knows not to land But hey, you know what? You know what would be great right now for these two private investigators if they had someone who could fly? Well, that's covered because (laughs) Kirk goes up, up and away. Props to Kirk because he's flying towards this plane, dive bombing this plane, which is fantastic. But that doesn't work. So he just like goes up and says, hey, I need you to land. (laughs) The pilot's not too smart. He's not getting the message. (laughs) (laughs) Down now, dummies. Yeah, I did like that sequence. That's pretty cool with the lettering and the screaming and the rowing. Mm -hmm. So then he he pulls him out of the plane. He says, I must have died and gone to Haiti. (laughs) (laughs) So then not only do we get, this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship, but we get, they're also helping Batman with the Gotham gorillas, which I think that is super cool. I love this story. It's much better than the power sour. (laughs) Someone someone said was the best story in this issue. That's why I was fighting for this one extra hard. This is the best looking story. I will say that. (laughs) It's the best looking story. I just want to say on page four, I really like the way Golden does the transition from Man Bat to Kirk. Is you know, he's, zip a tone? I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Because he's got that same effect on the next page with the shadows of Jason's lamp above his dining room table or something. If you look behind oh, yeah. Jason, 
they got that sh- right. sort of shaded look. I mean, it's really cool. Yeah. yeah. It looks really, you know, it could be overdone, but this is a really nice use of that zip tone effect. I had the same thought that Sean did. I really thought that he was just trying to blow off Eric. I didn't think that he really had anywhere to go. <laughs> if anywhere, I thought he was going to check up on who this guy is and how he got in his island and <laughs> everything else. I thought it was also interesting that they explicitly say that New York is, is essentially a sister city to Gotham. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like you can just, yeah. I guess, drive over a bridge and, and get there. Yeah, yeah uh, Bob Rosakis continues to think that. Yeah. We love Bob anyway. Yeah, it was interesting, but in the text, it kind of says, oh, they're mysteriously similar. And I'm like, eh, I don't really. Well, I don't know if this is the correct. Like my knee jerk reaction to that is I don't like that. I think right. Gotham is New York. Mm-hmm. I guess Ivy Town is Boston. That kind of... But then you do have Washington, D.C. Should there be these fake names, but then Washington, D.C. should be Washington, D.C.? Because I think it should be Washington, D.C. So Man, I always like them being separate but they're farther apart there's just more people right. in the dc universe you know you oh, I feel- and a gotham and a metropolis why not so you're saying there should be new york city and gotham hey in the amazing world of dc comics it said gotham <laughs> city was in south jersey right metropolis is in delaware new york is you know i mean there's just more people <laughs> they live in these cities. and why they all stay in gotham that's the big mystery Right. Yeah, really, yeah. Why does Kirk, I mean, I guess he's kind of in a hurry, but why does he not put his shirt back on? Yeah. <laughs> why does he, and I don't, is he barefoot too? I don't, I don't know. Because he's kind of look cool, Max. Come I on. guess so. Spoiler alert, because this is like the third time it's brought up. That is a 70s moment. Because yeah. in the 70s, guys could just walk around without a shirt and it was perfectly fine. And, you know, is, I wish you would bring those days back <laughs> much, so much. But we're not. That is a 70s moment that you could just like walk around without a shirt. Yeah, and that's fine. Yeah. I guess you'd be glad he's not wearing like a mesh tank or something like that. You know, those, <laughs> those are also very big in the 70s. And he makes a reference to one of the thugs makes a reference to Walking Tall, that movie based on a real life sheriff who apparently legendarily went around whacking people with a stick. <laughs> so I thought that was kind of a neat reference. He saved those necks. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Max, you're ruining my stick here. <laughs> I specifically have a piece of paper written down with stuff like that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's one in every family. <laughs> I do like on that final page. I like that profile of, of Man Bat. I think that looks really good. Yeah. And that He's was ha- happy with himself at the end. <laughs> he is. He's such a happy little man. Yeah, I earned a job today. <laughs> Okay, we are doing our bat branding, although there are no ads this issue, which I guess technically we shouldn't like ads, but I love the advertisements. But that does still leave us with Batman family, so we'll get into that. And definitely, we are inviting Margaret O'Connell, Gary Thompson, Philip Bostwinnick, David Jones, Mike White, Steve Feldberg, Robert Salian and Jimmy Johnson. If you are listening to us right now, please write in because we would love to hear from you. We were super lucky to have a former letter writer be on the show. Two. Two. I'm sorry, two, two, two. Yep. Craig and Martin. Okay. So do you want me to start? I'll start. I just have a couple of quick notes. One is you've got the note from Al Milgram, the mm-hmm. editor, at the yep. beginning saying, hey, it's still dollar comic. It might feel a little thinner, but you actually have more content because we don't have ads anymore. So I always like those little comments from creators and the editors to say, here's what's going on. Here's our plans. I do like that. I absolutely did. And I'm sure I did count each page to see if it really <laughs> was. I, I bet I did. <laughs> it's so much thinner. I mean, there's a lot of good reviews for number 17, which was the first dollar comic. I don't know if you have specifics. I do have some specifics. So Margaret O'Connell did like a little switch on me. She said, finally, Man Bat. Boy, has this character come a long way. Sometimes 
His story is the most interesting one in the book. Margaret, you are right. Okay. Then she goes on to say, that wasn't true this-ish because of the extremely high quality of the book. Yeah. <laughs> but she does say, but there's a demon born every minute was still devilishly good. So, so <laughs> she came back around to me. Got her tongue in cheek there. <laughs> Bat Cousins, if you remember this letter column page, you will remember it because they reprint the panel <laughs> where the cop is complaining about the appearance of man bat and the demon <laughs> i love that steve feldberg says dear al this is a fan letter for one panel of batman family number 17 specifically panel three of page 13 of the man bat story what better comment on the human comedy than that cop's remarks when superheroes become so passe that we can criticize how they look. In any case, I got a good laugh out of it. Thanks. And they reprint the panel where the cop is saying, Cripes, whatever happened to heroes who look like heroes? These two are the ugliest suckers I've ever seen. <laughs> Love it. There's one more letter I want to point out. So the very last letter is a personal note to editor Al Milgram of the Batman Family comic. Dear Al, the next time you make another issue of Batman Family, Please put Batmite in it. Please. <laughs> Jimmy Johnson. And Al says, we can't do it in the very next issue, Jimmy. But our plans call for the long-awaited appearance of Batmite in Batfam number 23. Get ready for it, Bob Rosakis. The only thing I was going to say is right above that, this is where we find out that it was mm. editor Al Milgram who penned the poem on the first page, that poem that apparently Chris Franklin can still recite by memory, which <laughs> amazed me. Good news and the bad news. The bad news is Huntress will not be appearing in the next issue of Batman Family because the demon is coming in. But the good news is that Paul Levitz is working on her appearance in Showcase. Wah, wah, wah. Very sad. But since we were talking about Al Milgram so much, guess what, guys? I want to do the Bat Family history on Al Milgram. He was the editor of Batman Family for the last several issues. He was born in 1950, started his career in 1972 as an assistant for Murphy Anderson. During that period, he contributed to Charlton's Many Ghosts of Dr. Graves, which I'm sure Max likes, Star Reach, and some comics published by Warren and Atlas Seaboard before joining Marvel. He also worked in the Krusty Bunkers as one of Neil Adams' associates in 1977. So at one point, Al Milgram lived in the same Queens apartment or apartment building as artists Walt Simonson, Howard Chaikin, and Bernie Wrightson. So Simonson recalls, quote, we'd get together at 3 a.m. They'd come up, we'd have popcorn and sit around and talk about whatever a 26, 27, 20-something-year-old guys talk about. Art, TV, you name it. I pretty much knew at the time, these are the good old days. <laughs> so Milgram came to prominence really uh, as a penciler on Captain Marvel, from 1975 to 77. He also did some Guardians of the Galaxy, which was written by Steve Gerber. He moved over and from 1977 to 1978, he became an editor at DC Comics. While at DC, of course, with particular interest to uh, listeners of the Fire and Water Network, Milgram helped co-create with Jerry Conway, of course, Firestorm, the Nuclear Man. But even more famously, with our back cousin Bob Rosakis, he was the co-creator and penciled the first appearance of Lori Elton in the parking lot bandit story in Detective <laughs> Comics number 450. <laughs> Unfortunately, as we all know, on June 22nd, 1978, DC Comics announced staff layoffs and the cancellation of approximately 40% of its line. Happened about a month from now. The DC implosion had arrived. 
editors Al Milgram and Larry Hama were the two editors that were laid off. That coincides, of course, with Batman Family moving to Detective next month. Paul Levitz was the editor on Detective. And that's why we don't see, when I talk to Paul, that's why we don't see The Huntress for a while. Again, for those who want more on the DC implosion, there's a great book from Tomorrow's. And I also found a nice Wikipedia article. I'll include those links in the show notes. Back to Al. I'd say he landed on his feet. He went over and became a long-tenured editor and artist for Marvel Comics beginning in 1979. Edited Marvel Fanfare for its full 10-year run from 1982 to 1992. I think most of us got to know him there as he personalized his experience with editorial Al, one-page strips on the inside covers of, of that. He edited the Hulk, he drew the Avengers, the West Coast Avengers, and Kitty Pride and Wolverine. He was a prolific inker. He worked on most of Marvel's line. Eight-year stint as inker of X-Factor. I didn't realize that. In 1989 to 1997, Thor, Captain America, Generation X, Micronauts, Uncanny Axemen, and the Spectacular Spider-Man, you know, all kinds of stuff. So here's an interesting one that I did not realize. In 2001, Milgram was fired from his Marvel staff job when it was discovered that he had hidden slanderous comments in the artwork against then-editor-in-chief Bob Harris in the background of a page in the book Universe X Special colon Spidey, which I have not read, but I found the panel and I will include it in the show notes. On page 28, panel 3, the spines of books on a bookshelf in the background read, quote, Harris, ha-ha, he's gone. Good riddance to bad rubbish. He was a nasty SOB when the comic is turned sideways. (laughs) Wait, do you see this picture? It's awesome. I had not heard that story before, but there's a a story about this book on a website called recalledcomics.com. I'll put that image in there as well. Nevertheless, Milgram continued to freelance for Marvel, mostly inking Jim Starlin's work. He was good friends with Jim Starlin. And, you know, he's the superstar, so Marvel's going to let him work on that. He also started working for Archie Comics on a regular basis, inking a variety of titles. Beginning in the early 2000s, he finally freelanced for DC again. But, you know, sort of B-list titles, Mystery in Space, Volume 2, Ambush Bug, Strange Adventures, you know, sort of phased out generally. But he does have a prolific uh, number of story credits. Mike's Amazing World lists 1,067 story credits, only 77 for DC, 28 for Archie, and 756 for Marvel, and hundreds of covers, too. Let's check out the Mike's Amazing World link. He's still with us today, and Sean, he is expected to be at the Baltimore Comic-Con in 2023. So maybe we will see him and thank him for his efforts on Batman Family and get him to sign my issue of number 20. Fantastic, yeah. So thanks for letting me talk about him for a bit. Nice. You know, El Milgram is one of those people that if you read comics regularly, you always came across his name somewhere. Yeah, he's very prolific. And just a reminder, before we get to the next story, any of our Bat listeners, the Baltimore Comic Con is September 8th to 10th. Sean and I haven't quite made our plans for which days we're going to be there. But if you are planning to go or thinking about it, reach out to one of us and let us know. It would be great to have a reunion there. So just let us know. We'll let you know on next month's episode, which will drop at the very beginning of September, what days will be there. But if you think you're going to come, let us know beforehand. And we'll set something up. All right. You guys ready to talk Helen Wayne? I'm ready to go on the hunt. Yeah. All right. Our fourth story is called Trial by Fire, starring the Huntress, a 12-pager written, of course, by Paul Levitz with art by Joe Staten and Bob Layton, reprinted in Huntress Dark Knight Daughter and Huntress Origins. Helena is a hot mess. Literally. (laughs) After getting bonked on the head at the end of last issue, she awakes to find herself tied to a chair in a raging fire. She is breathing in more smoke than from a Canadian forest fire. (laughs) After pausing to think through the recap of the last two issues, she does the old jump up, 
crash down to break the chair and then burn off the ropes routine. She cleverly escapes the tenement fire by using her crossbow as a wedge to break the concrete that the window bars were stuck in and get out. Whew. We cut to her apartment where we get some beautiful Satan art of Helena in her barely on bathrobe after her shower. Hubba hubba. <laughs> Sorry, I was distracted there for a minute. <laughs> Helena is worried that Councilman Gresham took a peek at her under her mask while she was out. I don't know why he'd be looking at the mask. But anyway, so both Helena and Huntress make themselves scarce for the next week or so until Gresham is out giving a tour of another condemned building to some VIPs. Ironically, he falls through the rotten floor right where the Huntress is awaiting him. She has already found his incendiary device. He struggles with her to get away. And in the confusion, the building goes up in flames with Gresham inside. Gotham does get the money for rebuilding, and Gresham is remembered as a visionary who died in a terrible accident. Helena knows better and sheds no tears for him. The end. Coming soon, the Huntress stars in her own showcase adventure. Aw, Max, Sean, what'd you think? You know, I enjoyed it. Another real estate scam murder <laughs> plot going on here. Don't don't get into real estate, kids. I liked how scummy the guy was, the 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 bad guy. He's yeah. pretty bad. He's burning people out of their homes. The ending was very I can't remember the name of the second movie now. He, he turned out to be the two face of the Harvey Dent of <laughs> you know, where you know he was not the hero that they needed, but it was pretty good. It, it was a lot of flashback, which I appreciated. You know, I know a lot of people complain about the decompression, and I do too, but I always appreciate how these stories kind of, you can pick up a story almost anywhere because they at least give you a brief re enough recap to yeah, so you know, know what's going on yeah so you know what's going on a lost I art max a lost art it is and i i really appreciated it in this story in particular how about you sean i like it love hunters love the artwork and this really makes me think and again it's been a while since i read a lot of modern modern comics but you don't really see heroes getting out of traps anymore yeah. Yeah, it was a true. big part of the Bronze Age comics we love is them yeah. escaping death traps. That's a great point, Sean. Yeah. And it is the 70s. So you are kind of getting the graying of, I don't know if it's morality, because basically like this guy was horrible, but people don't know that. Yep. Like, the general public right. is not going to know that. They're not going to know what evil he did. So even that is interesting in a story point because it's not necessarily all good guy, bad guy, bad guy pays for his crimes, that kind of thing. So I think that's interesting too. Too. Yeah. This story, when you read all three parts, pulls together really well because it's a three-part story with beginning there. And that's we struggled a little bit last time with the middle because it really was a middle. This is a great conclusion. Helena's like, hey, you know, I don't think I'll waste any tears crying for a man who was a murderer a hundred times over. Yeah. Her conscience is clear, right? Anyway, I, I love it. I love the the beginning. Look at the first page. You got Helena tied up in the chair, her shadow with the bat shadow behind her. I always love it when they yeah. did that with her, mm -hmm. the Batman shadow behind her. She's like, oh my gosh, she wakes up, flashes back to how she got there. She then has to burn the ropes. I thought you would like, Sean, or talk about how her cape catches on fire, so she leaves that behind. I like that, yeah. And she jumps out, and she's trying to figure out how to get out, and the bars are her holding her in, but she cleverly figures out that she could scrape out or bend out the concrete so that she can slip out on the bar. So yeah. I thought that sequence was terrific. I think so, too. Art-wise, as well genuine tension i guess there and then we jump to the bathroom have helena right out of the shower <laughs> like that was uh just dating like a little bit of cheesecake there a little that's the, that's the whole pie that's the whole pie <laughs> i didn't quite get the logic she was afraid that he looked at her mask so she goes low-key for a week to see if he like starts talking about helena wayne and he doesn't we never find out if he looked under a mask or not it's interesting she doesn't ever find out either 
which I think is interesting. But why did we need that? Like, why wouldn't she just go out that next night and the whole action sequence could have happened the next night? Mm-hmm. I didn't quite follow why we needed that, but it doesn't really harm the story to me. But I thought that was a little confusing. Had he lived, it would create the, does he know? Is he going to tell? Right. Yeah. And I get, thing. so I get why he has to die, but why she had to wait a week for this next sort of part of the adventure, I, I didn't right, quite yeah. get. Well, and especially since she chose to hide out just in case. Right. But so did he. So they were they were both basically hiding at the same time for the same length of time. Yeah. So yeah, it could have yeah, that was a wasted yeah. week. <laughs> I guess, in story. I definitely like that they added the note of she told her father and her boss. Like, yes. I liked that. I thought that mm-hmm. was great. That was cool. Yeah, that was very yeah. cool. I always love it when the heroes land on the top of cars and listen in because anything that lands on top of your car, you know, but in the comic books or in the movie, you never know. There's somebody <laughs> hanging from the top of your car. So I love that <laughs> sequence. Art is just great. We get this image of the terrible neighborhood and, the, and then there's a mouse on the stairs of the building they go into. Oh, that detail. It's very straightforward, but a, just a, a satisfying conclusion to a real solid story, in, in my opinion. Solid all around. Now, I did want to point out, so I kind of like let you go cast it to see if anybody was going to bring it up. So on story page seven, the bottom panel, like where she's jumping up towards the traffic light. Mm-hmm. The traffic light. What about it? So the colors are in the wrong order. So like red is at the bottom. <gasps> You're right. Oh, look at that. Green is at the top. Wow, look at that. <laughs> yeah. That's a great catch, Sean. I did not catch that. Yeah. That is weird. Yeah. Good catch. Oh, That's wow. not even a Gabriel's horn. That just is like <laughs> a weird thing. That's a colorist. Who's the colorist? <laughs> Adrienne Roy. So I don't know. She's outstanding colorist. So I don't know why. Yeah, that's, that's the worst thing we can say about the story, though. That's, yeah, that's not agree, bad. Yeah. All right, so good conclusion to a great segment. So we are going to now take a trip to Gabriel's Horn, the hip-hopping hangout for the Teen Titans in the 1970s. Right now, of course, only Mal and Karen are there. Teen Titans are on a break. But anyway, we are still going to talk about the most 1970s moment of this issue from any of the stories. So Max, did you have anything you would like to bring up? 70s moments from these stories. I did. You know, there's a lot of things you know, that stand out just because of, you know, the time, you know, at the time yeah. they, were, they were very modern, but at the time, but now obviously they stick out like the rotary phones and yeah. phones, you know, stuff like that. But my 70s moment is actually on page 19. It's the end of the uh, Batman story and it is Bruce Wayne. He is <laughs> so yes. 70s there. Yes. Bring a pinstripe jacket. He's got his shirt open, you know, down so you can see his hairy chest. Yeah. He looks like, what's his face? I can't remember his name, but in Shampoo. Warren Beatty. Warren Beatty. He looks like, <laughs> he totally looks like Warren Beatty to me. Nothing said of the 70s to me like Warren Beatty. There you go. That's a good one. Sean, do you have any others from the Batman story? Kind of like we talked camera developing. Yeah, the developing of the pictures. Yeah. Absolutely. But also on the very first page, it says, Dark Knight Detective plies his dangerous trade in a close encounter of the murderous kind. Yes, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> that was mine too. So a good one. That's it. So then in Batgirl and Robin, what do you have there, Max? We talked about the energy conservation and all that. The whole theme of the story about energy conservation is obviously a Gabriel's horn thing. Did you have anything else in that story? Not really beyond the the phone thing and the possible feedback that might have gotten. Yeah. I don't even yeah. know if that was ever real. I don't know yeah. if that was just a myth people <laughs> used to tell to each other. But I kind of like that, that that was a very subtle kind of thing. I mean, you had to be there, I guess, to, to have even picked up on why that might have been a thing. But yeah, that and the solar power thing, for me, that put it solidly in the 70s. I had only one, Sean, and it's only a, a minor one. How about how about did it's, you have? 
probably maybe the same one yeah my mind on on story page 11 yep the stack of tvs in the window of the store Mm -hmm. other than the style of the tv like if you go to new york city they probably still have tvs in the window they probably do it's just just now why all right all right but mine is on page 11 and it's just putting a more finer point because they specifically say the oil embargo a few Mm -hmm. years ago Yeah, 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 yeah yeah exactly so then in Man Bat. All of mine were ruined by Max. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. oh, no. I still have two left, though. So that's Oh, okay. go for it. The only thing I had was I wish I could afford coffee, but we've already <laughs> joked about that. Costa Coffee, walking tall, guy walking around without a shirt. So even at this point, I probably think it was too old fashioned. But the fact that the guy calls Jason Bard a private dick. Ah, okay. So I think <laughs> yeah. even during the 70s, that probably, probably was. Probably an old terminology, yeah. But on page. Page five in the corner, Kirk's mutton chops. Holy moly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's good. One. That could be a 1970s or like a Continental Congress. All <laughs> uh, and then in the Huntress, do you have anything, Max? I don't think anything really jumped out at me about the Huntress. I guess just the oh, the whole idea of, I mean, and obviously it's still something that happens today, but I remember when I was a kid in these days that the idea of slums was very prominent. I mean, nobody really calls them that anymore or anything like that, but you had this idea of New York with the trash on the street and, you know, before America's mayor cleaned it up and all that sort of thing. And you used to hear about arson and all that sort of thing. And so that to me seemed very 70s, just that whole idea of of, mm-hmm. uh, of a neighborhood. Oh, it's of its time, maybe that's what you're saying yeah i mean that is something that still occurs today but i think the imagery of it to me was was very much from that time the only thing i had and it was hard for me to draw my eyes away from helena lounging on page (laughs) six but on the page where she's got her feet up on the desk the phone that she's got there with the i mean that that whole device there that she's got on her desk looks very 70s to me (laughs) that's all i had in helena's story mine is really minor i don't think that technically it really is of its t- but bathrobe do people still wear bathrobes <laughs> oh yeah my <laughs> wife wears hers all the time really okay yeah because yeah, i not like this i mean i wish but no I, mean... <laughs> uh, I just i just never see i guess people do still wear bathrobes i don't know like i just my daughter wears hers you know especially in the winter right it's almost like those smoking jackets you know <laughs> why well, I, I just think it's been replaced by sweats and lounge yeah that's true that kind, that kind of stuff I will say one thing that looked very 70s to me, and I don't think it was on purpose, (laughs) was the kid who is on page two looks a lot to me like Chaka from Land of the Lost. (laughs) I I don't know. I love Joe Staten. I love Joe Staten. Yeah. But I don't know what happened there. Okay, Bat Cousins. We don't have ads this issue, and our contract says that we have to have 14-hour episodes. (laughs) So I am going to give you a Batman family story time. And of course, it's going to ramble on because I'm telling a story. But I swear this is relevant. So technically, chronologically, this story takes place after... Batman Family was over, and even after Detective Comics had finished its Batman Family run as the dollar comic, but it is Batman Family related. Years and years and years ago, maybe between 81 and 84, I was part of a church youth group, and we definitely were more of a youth social group. I think maybe like twice a month, we would go do things. We'd go to the movies, play miniature golf, go bowling. The important part of this story is every year, the first Saturday of December, we would go Christmas shopping. I lived in Spring Grove, Pennsylvania, 
which is about an hour from Harrisburg. If you know the area, it's between York and Hanover. But an hour away from us was Lancaster, not Lancaster, but Lancaster, uh, where the Amish people are. Brett, this story is for you. There's a huge mall there called Park City. And this was like a mega mall. This was like the biggest mall in the area. It was beautiful, tons of stores. So we would go there Christmas shopping. The first time I had ever, ever, ever been in a comic book shop was at Park City. Down in the basement, they had a farmer's market. Comic store had a location there. It was the first time I had ever seen direct comics. So I got Justice League 200 when I was there. That's how I can pinpoint the dates of this story. I got Justice League 200 before it was on the newsstand. When I was there, you could enter a contest to win prizes. And the prizes were gift certificates. I thought, oh, fantastic. So after spending probably like an hour or two hours just like going through all the comic books and seeing everything <laughs> and probably spending all of the money I should have spent on Christmas presents <laughs> I was gonna say. on the comics, <laughs> I know I did, but I did still buy Christmas presents for people, but probably not as many as I would have. <laughs> so I entered a contest to win gift certificates. So I couldn't believe it, but maybe like a week later, I was informed that I won a gift certificate. And I actually oh. can't remember, it's probably 10 or $20, sure. probably. But this was right before Christmas. I was ecstatic. I could not believe it. I told my mom about it. And she said, well, okay, when you're on vacation between Christmas and New Year's, we'll go over to Park City and you can spend your gift certificate. So I was like over the moon. Like, oh, I could not believe it. I actually can't remember if this was in 1981, 82, 83, because every year we would go. So I'm not exactly sure which year this happened. We went to Park City. And I could not believe my eyes because there, like, waiting for me with a spotlight on it was two bundles. One bundle was Batman Family number 1 through 10. Another bundle was Batman Family 11 through 20. Now, I had some of the issues. I didn't get Batman Family until number 7. So 7 was my first one. So I didn't have 1 through 6 at all. So that's when I got those. And then throughout... I had most of them, but I still got both of those bundles. So I was so happy, so ecstatic. Got both of them, used my gift certificate. I can't remember if that was all of it or I got other stuff too, but I I was so happy. So we were driving home and to get from York to Lancaster, you cross the Susquehanna River. And there's like this huge long bridge that crosses that river. We were in a VW Bug, 1980 Volkswagen, and we're driving across the bridge and the front roof pops up and blocks my mom's vision of driving. It was me, my mom. This took a strange turn, this story. my, My brother and my sister, Rib and Missy and me and mom are all in the VW. The hood pops up. She doesn't slam on the brakes, but she slows down. And I remember looking behind me and there was a man telling us that it was okay to come over. He slowed down. So like the cars behind him would slow down. And then we went in front of him and then we went over to the side of the bridge. And then we got out and we closed the hood. Wow. And then went back to Spring Road. (laughs) But I can still still remember that image of the hood popping up. Wow, that is, that's scary. <laughs> and it was funny because in preparation for this, and I was trying to pinpoint the years that I was in church youth group. So the earliest memory I have that fits in the time is I remember getting Justice League 200. 
And that was 1981. Yeah, so that was 81. And I remember Detective Comics 526 is the 500th anniversary or whatever. It's it's some kind of, it's the red cover with like a gold foil. Don Newton. Yeah, Don Newton. Our church youth group used to get together overnight and maybe like at two or three o'clock in the morning, we would start making submarine sandwiches, subs, and we would take them to the paper mill, which was right across the street. So we would stand outside like different entrances for the paper mill to sell subs for our trip to Disney World. Mm. And our trip to Disney World happened in 84. We did one of these overnight things the night that Michael Jackson's hair caught fire from the filming of the Pepsi commercial. And we were like so worried about it. (laughs) (laughs) We once went on a trip to Inner Harbor. And when we went to Inner Harbor, there was a Jeppies Comics World there. And I bought Tales of the New Teen Titans number two with Raven. Ah, I can pinpoint that. Wow. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, I remember, like, I remember those dates because of like the comics I bought yeah. when I was on Church Youth Group trips. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I love it. But well, that story. is how I completed, at the time, completed my collection. Once it turned to Detective, then I had all of those. But right. I was missing some early Batman families. And that's how I filled in all of those early issues very cool family i did not see that story going to a near accident (laughs) on a bridge at michael jackson (laughs) so that wraps it up for this issue max thanks again for coming on do you want to remind everyone where they can find you sure they can find me right here on the fire and water podcast network i do a human flycast show called the death defying human flycast i also do plasticast and people probably have forgotten because it's been so long but i actually do have another podcast a literary podcast called the mirror factory and that is going to be coming back soon hopefully and you can find me also on all and i mean all the social media usually under maxo romero of some in one way or another that's where you can find me awesome well thanks max thank you Now, we're going to play a podcast promo, and when we return, we will read and respond to your listener feedback. Welcome, one and all, to the Fire and Water Racetrack and Arena. Please direct your attention to the center of the track, where you will see 36 buses lined up between two ramps, a tank full of live man-eating sharks, and a high wire stretching over it all. The rocket cycle is warmed up, and all the nets have been removed. Who would attempt these stunts just to entertain and inspire his audience? What kind of man... What kind of hero? There, coming in on a rocket-powered skateboard, it's the death-defying human flycast! Join me, Max Romero, and a rotating roster of guests as we dive headfirst into the colorful comics of Marvel's The Human Fly. The Death-Defying Human Flycast is a limited episode podcast spotlighting the adventures of a man who comes back from a crippling auto accident to become a mysteriously masked stuntman with a mission to inspire others to never give up hope. We'll also talk about the real-life human fly, a daredevil with a murky past and a desire to be the best stuntman in history until the day he just disappeared. The actual human fly would vanish as suddenly as he had materialized, but not before sparking a comic series featuring what would be the wildest superhero ever, because he was real. It's gonna be wild. Welcome back. Now we will read and respond to your listener feedback for episode 19. 
Killer Bats and Earth Shaken Crimes with our special guest, Brett Young. So first up, we have Brian Shufo, who says, another successful reunion. I think I had that puzzle book with the Joker face on the cover. It was probably on sale at the local pharmacy where my mother worked evenings. I would also hang out with her and grab a stack of comics off the rack and bring them into the back room and read, read, read. I wasn't into sports, but I was into collecting baseball cards and eating Hostess products. Hey, fits right in. (laughs) I remember cutting these fake cards off the boxes and treating them like real cards. I think there might have even been printing on the back with stats. Sounds familiar, Ryan. Vince Coletta, with all his controversies, had a distinct way of inking women's faces that I found very appealing as a 12-year-old boy. I've since heard about all the details he was known to have erased just to finish a job quickly. But are there times where he might have added details to make the women more voluptuous? Would that help explain how Batgirl looked in this issue? In the original Dazzler series, which was inked a lot by Coletta, Allison Blair inevitably would be missing buttons on her clothes. How much of that was designed in the pencils versus ink? Was Vince adding or moving some lines around? I wouldn't doubt it, Brian. Oh, and I never unrolled that long red line of caps with a hammer. I used a rock. He's tougher than us, Sean. I know. To which Matthew Davis said, I had more of my share of cap guns when I was a kid. I was always more partial to the ring caps, though. <laughs> Bucky749 stopped by just to let us know that he brought back cookies, strawberry and blueberry shortcake, battering shaped cookies with real whipped cream made with 100% milk. Mm-mm. In addition, Liz Ann Oswald first dropped a video link on the website. Check it out if you want to see Cindy Lauper's Sheba, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Lizanne then adds her comments. Impressive podcast, most impressive. The cover is pretty cool. The combo on the art works well. An odd story, but it does fit the Adams Owen O'Neill style at the time. What? Robin went back to Loy? Oi, does he not get that he just escaped? He was free. Ah, <laughs> uh, the Raven. Yeah, we know he's Lori's new boy toy. Boy, she sure can pick him. Cool woman bat story. I'm not calling her Fran Bat. <laughs> the Huntress story is cool. Captain Chauvinist figured out who the villain was. Ah, uh, well, even a blind squirrel gets a nut every once in a while. Can't wait to hear the next podcast. <laughs> Thanks, Liz. That cousin Rob McCarthy says, if you think they're doing weird stuff with Baby Bat now, wait about three years. The kid is going to be in group therapy with Quicksilver and Crystal's kid. <laughs> Our buddy, past and future Bat guest Martin Gray says, excellent show. Well, so far. I've not finished, but I need to be the first person to point out that Granny Bleach from the Batman story wasn't a one-off. The character find of 1978, (laughs) she was brought back a year later by Uncle Denny in the seminal Green Lantern Green Arrow number 113. She even gets to be on a fantastic cover by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. Wow, Martin, that's a great catch. I'll describe the cover. It's Granny Bleach, sort of ghostly image, standing behind a mountain of snow. And Green Lantern, Green Arrow, and Black Canary are on Green Lantern fabricated skis, skiing down the slope with a fire coming after them. Green Arrow says, use your power ring. Stop that lava flow. And the caption at the bottom says, but if Green Lantern uses his powers, The mountain's curse will destroy them all. (laughs) So I have to go back and read this story. So great catch, Martin. Martin comes back a little later to finish off his comments. Now, who was it that mentioned George Tuska having drawn Steel, the indestructible man? Tuska didn't draw Steel. Co-creator with Jerry Conway was Batman family favorite Don Heck. And Juan Ortiz did a couple backups. Martin, you are 100% apologies. 
to Mr. Hack. I got that wrong. Then he goes on, which I was quite disappointed in, Martin, because he goes on to say, could someone please explain the Robin's Bad Very Day alternate title gag? Which made me laugh my horse laugh. So originally, the Christmas story is supposed to be titled Robin's Very White Christmas. But whoever, I guess the letterer, had Robin's white very christmas now it is corrected in the digest which is wonderful but paul made me laugh tremendously by referencing the mistake that was earlier so anyway martin you have to go back and listen to episode four so then he goes on to say how can you have an earth shattering in a bob rosakis title when there's no quake master in the story similarly could someone explain the man bat song gag this one's yours, Sean. Well, thankfully, Liz posted a link. So it's the Cindy Lauper song, Shebop, but instead it was She Bad, He Bad. The other song I was going to try to go for was Grazing in the Grass, which is She Can Dig It, He Can Dig It, We Can Dig It, You Can Dig It, They Can Dig It, We Can Dig It, you can, dig it can You Dig It, Baby. But I can't do it fast enough, so I went with Shebop instead. Hey, Martin, you complain about Bruce Springsteen, you're going to get that <laughs> instead. So, so that's, that's your own fault. Martin goes on, thank you for the spotlight on Danny Bulinati, a talented gentleman. I hadn't heard that he died. It's interesting that Nestor de Redondo had Danny promised to illustrate the Bible. Perhaps he still felt a job needed doing after the curtailed DC Bible tabloid he did with Joe Cooper. Good point. I'll be in Brett's Hallmark Movie Podcast right after I return to my hometown to run my dead grand's cupcake shop that she shockingly also left my ex-boyfriend <laughs> to stop the real estate developers closing the local library where the town real murder club meets. <laughs> Relive every Christmas until I realize that true meaning teaches kids what wooden toys are better than modern rubbish. Mary and Andrew, okay, that's it. That's it, Martin. We get that point. <laughs> I can't wait to subscribe to that streaming service. <laughs> really? <laughs> Bat Cousin Matthew Davis says, I hope everyone had a great 4th of July. The Batman story is one that I don't think I appreciated how good it was until I was 11. Denny O'Neill shows why he is one of the greatest Batman writers. He's given us some great storylines, but also many fantastic standalone stories like this. Michael Golden was the ideal artist for the story. I also noticed Granny Bleach's corncob pipe being an actual corncob. A spy caper with Batgirl versus exploding Chinese Superman. Maybe their team name should be called the Boom Patrol. <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. You don't have to apologize for that because I love that, Matthew. Back to Matthew. Okay, I get it. The Chinese are creating their own superheroes because they think the U.S. did, and they think Tony Gordon escaped with some of their stolen tech. But if the U.S. had their own tech, what makes them think Firestorm was created with their tech? At the time, Lex Luthor was pretty arrogant, but I think Wo Fong is at a whole other <laughs> level. Ephraim mumbling Tony's name in public after telling Batgirl his name was classified? Not what one would expect <laughs> a spy to do. The Robin story. Is it me, or does Marty resemble Stan Lee? Of course, the way he's sitting at that desk, he resembles Bob, the <laughs> ventriloquist dummy on soap. <laughs> Does Corby have any clothes that don't have the school logo? Jeez, man, shop somewhere besides the school bookstore. Even something in basic black would be fine. When talking about Lori, Matthew says, Good grief. Dick helped save her from her previous ex dumping acid on her face, and she can't talk to him for a few minutes? <laughs> hey, we got a new supervillain, the Raven, and he can fly? Does Hawkman have a prodigal son? About the Man-Bat story. So, Francine is called She-Bat. It's nice to know that I'm not the only one who thought about Cindy Lauper. I can't wait to see or hear 
what 80s song next issue inspires. <laughs> so a little behind the scenes. So I couldn't make Grayson and the Grass work for this one. In Private Eye Man Bat, I was thinking of doing Hall and Oates Private Eyes, but I couldn't <laughs> get that to work out either. And one thing I, I hate when people, you know, make up parody songs, but then the syllables don't fit. Like they try to cram extra syllables in. So I was like, Private Eye Man Bat, he's watching. <laughs> that, it doesn't line up. So I didn't do that at all. I'm sure there will be some coming in the future. Back to Matthew. Kirk may have left baby Rebecca alone, thinking it would only be a few minutes. Fly out, find his wife, and bring her back to their nest, or a crazily big Manhattan apartment. Little did he realize that she managed to find Snafu. (laughs) Mambat's sonar is echolocation. He can tell what's around him by the echoes of his screeches reflecting back to him. One episode of Stan Lee's Superhumans, now on Disney+, featured a blind man who could do this. I'm not an expert on bats. I just remember this episode. Mambat turning off his sonar was just to stop his screeching. Bring in the science. We have some (laughs) smart listeners, Sean. The Huntress story. It's great to see that Levitz keeps in mind that Helena is new to being a crime fighter. Not only that, but her parents, despite who they are, may have taught her a lot, but they did not train her to be a crime fighter. She became one because of her father's example. It's also great to see that we don't see her father. Nothing against the Earth to Batman. But I like that they resisted the urge to bring him into the story so that Helena could stand on her own. Although it would have been great to see him stare down Roger. (laughs) And is it me or does Roger always have a sneer? Look at pages six and eight. This issue was light on really obvious 70s things. Chris Hobart's perm, Wo Fung's base in a Chinese laundry was a bad stereotype. I got to go with Roger's combo of Farrah Fawcett's feathered hair and Herb (laughs) Tarlick's wardrobe. Looking forward to next issue. Holy incomplete run. Batman Family 20 is not on DC Universe. Not so infinite. Now to go on my own Indiana Jones quest into my collection for my copy. (laughs) This is Sean interjecting. I'm really eager to see if anyone can figure out or know or guess why that's not on DC Universe. Not so infinite. I'm eager to look forward to that. Bat cousin and bat buddy Dan D stops by. Excellent storytelling from all you guys. You have an amazing amount of camaraderie. Well, you should hear what I delete. Yeah. I like this issue, but you did miss something. Maybe you mentioned this and I wasn't listening closely enough. What's the Saki-Ambassador relationship all about? Saki gives him his muffler. Ambassador, he's my friend. And then the driver calls Saki a sissy. Regardless, the ambassador has a keen eye for talent. Oddly courageous secretaries like Saki, who are willing to take a grenade in the belly to save their boss, were rare even in 1978. <laughs> Sean, what do you think? Any relationship between Saki and the ambassador? I'm usually one to pick up pick that up. homo mm-hmm. subtext or create it where there is none. Or that kind of... <laughs> I am not saying it's not there or that it's not a valid take. I didn't pick up on it, but it's cool that the next time I read that, I'm sure I will think that. So I'm all for it. There you go. Back cousin Randy K says, another very enjoyable podcast, guys. Not only was Helena Wayne the first true legacy DC character, but if I'm not mistaken, she was also the first legacy character to have a beginning and an end. It was established that she was born in 1957 two years after Batman and Catwoman got married Mm -hmm. and then died in 1985 during the crisis on infinite earths. The dates were confirmed in the last days of the JSA. It really is tragic that such a great character had such a short career. Randy K that is a fantastic fine discovery realization. I think you are right. Yeah. And then finally the guest from that very episode, 
Brett Michael Young comes by to modestly say, Hey, Bat Cousins, I'm sorry I'm late. I had a rough reaction to some 40-year-old Clark bars I ate. <laughs> wow, what an episode. It has to be the best one to date. A true classic. I even got my parents, wife, and kids to download the show. Rumor has it that the episode is up for a Peabody, a Grammy, and somehow a Tony as well. <laughs> what a meeting of three minds. It was like the Yalta conference with slightly more talk about Batgirl's boobs. I think I've said everything I could possibly say about this particular Batman family issue. So let me just say how much I thoroughly enjoyed doing the episode with Paul and Sean. They are the nicest guys you can meet. And if you're not listening to Batman Family Reunion, you belong in Arkham. Well, thank you, Brett. We had a great time recording with you. And fear not, listeners, Brett will be back. So... I know that technically I'm supposed to be impartial and how all of my bad cousins are equally important to me and I care about all of you <laughs> evenly. However, secret message to Brett, if you get me a Tony, you are my favorite bad cousin ever. <laughs> Maybe everyone else needs to work a little harder, but if I get to accept a Tony award with this singing voice, I am for it. We're now going to talk about our Twitter, because I won't call it that other thing, and Facebook men mentions. <laughs> we got likes, shares, retweets, and all of that from Paul Wildenberger, Doug Game Master, Michael Best, John Hijack, Chris Franklin, Tom Pinsonalt, who gave me his pronunciation, which I appreciate, Van Z, <laughs> Codex Omniversa, Don Lindbergh, Scott Rowland, Max Romero, Namdi Fields, Mike Thomas, Brett Young, hey, Magazines and Monsters, Clinton Robison, Shag Matthews, Dr. Irving Forbush, Between the Pages Blog, Tim Price, The Pod Crasher, Brian Shufo, Martin Gray, Ascani Sun 22, and Rodney Trainom. We really appreciate all of the internet social media love you give. And we want to talk about the Fire and Water Podcast Network Facebook page. Michael Best commented with a bunch of cool stuff. He talked about Barbara's brother, Tony, and apparently he had an Earth 2 cameo at Lois and Clark's wedding, which he posted pictures of on the Facebook Fire and Water Batman Family Reunion post. So that's fantastic. And he also went that extra mile and posted all of the Clark bar ads <laughs> so the one with joker the one with the dc heroes the one with the marvel heroes the one with dr doom so michael best you are the best fantastic <laughs> job so on twitter who boy twitter was fantastic this month for batman family reunion paul and i met at the first con in delaware so there's a picture of us if you want to see how much i look like george clooney and at the con paul gave me all the superman family issues that i hadn't already had and I feel I have to say it for the 12,000th time. I love Superman Family. I will listen to every episode of a Superman Family podcast. I will not be doing a Superman Family. This isn't like Andrew Garfield saying he's not in the new Spider-Man movie. <laughs> this isn't me being coy or, you know, I want to hear people say, oh, I would love it. You would be great. Dude. No. I'm not going to be great at Superman Family. I would love to listen. I will talk about the crypto stories. I'll talk about issue 200. I have a funny story about how messed up I was in the head about issue 200. So I will tell that story on whatever Superman Family podcast there is, but I'm not doing it. However, I also want to point out, wow. So on that episode, we were talking about the DC superhero poster book. 
And let me tell you, Isamu went the extra mile, the extra ocean, the extra circumference of the earth, because he posted each and every poster in the DC superhero poster book. And he even posted the text page on it. Wow. Like, I want to publicly say, like, how much I appreciate all the work that went into that. Looking at these posters, I remember each and every one of these posters. I love it so much. I can't thank you enough for all of the stuff that you did. The only thing I will say, and this absolutely is nothing about him because he did a fantastic job. I was actually surprised. I didn't remember how many comic book covers were reprinted in the DC Superheroes poster book. And those were definitely my least favorite of the posters. For whatever reason, my favorite one is probably Supergirl and Superboy. I love that. So this is not like a secret plea that I'm doing the Superman Family podcast, but that is my favorite poster. I think because like they look so youthful and happy and that kind of stuff. Wonder Woman and Cheetah poster. I love that. I love the Green Arrow, Green Lantern poster, Captain Marvel and Savannah. I love So I can't thank you enough for posting all of those posters because they were phenomenal. Thank you so much. So before we sign off, as most of you know, Running the Fire and Water Podcast Network has gotten more costly over the years as more and more shows were added. So if you're enjoying what you hear on this show or any of the other shows, please consider becoming a patron. We're not all Bruce Wayne, but any small amount you give can help defray the cost. Maybe we'll even use the funds to get issue number 20 on DC Universe Infinite. Find out how. Go to patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. And thanks. That will do it for the feedback section and for episode 20. We want to thank our special guest, Plastic Man himself, Max Romero, for appearing on this episode. Please check out the Death Defying Human Flycast. It's a fun show. Thank you for listening, and we hope you will join us next... Oh, wait. Um... Is there a podcast next month? This is the last issue of Batman Family. Oh, I don't know. Uh, check out the Fire and Water Network on September 6th to find out. Mm-hmm.